You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and today I want to talk about what I refer to as the principles of training. And so when I was a young trainer and I started getting different help from other people who were way, way better than I was, I initially I was collecting techniques. Like someone would uh, show me a technique, I'm like, well, that one works way better than anything I've ever tried for that particular maneuver or whatever I was trying to do. And then I, you know, had someone else show me a different technique for something else. I'm like, now that one works really, that, that works the best I've ever seen for that particular exercise, for that particular maneuver. And as I started to collect these techniques, I started to realize, hang on now, some of these techniques, even though they, they look completely different from each other, actually have the same underlying principle behind them. And so when I started doing clinics, I, um, you know, in a clinic you'll work with, usually I have 12 horses in the clinics. And, you know, I might be working on a horse in the afternoon and I go, now, remember the horse this morning that would had a completely different problem, but remember why we worked on that problem? Well, why we, why the reason we approached the solution that way, this is exactly the same thing. And so I started giving these, these principles a name, <clears throat> naming these principles. And a number of years ago now, I was approached by a gentleman here in the US to do a TV show for a Roku TV channel here in the US called Farm and Ranch TV. And when I had the opportunity to do that, uh, I called the the, sh- the 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 TV show the principles of training, and each episode, I went through. I showed. I talked about a principle of training, and and showed you an example or one or more examples of what that principle was. And at the start of the show, right at the very beginning on the screen, I had a credit. I mean, had a quote that rolled up, and the quote said. As to methods, there may be a million and then some, but principles are few. The man who grasps principles can successfully select his own methods. The man who tries methods ignoring principles is sure to have trouble. And that quote is attributed to a guy named Emerson Harrington, who was an early 20th century efficiency expert. And so, you know, this whole show was about the different principles of training and, and doing clinics over the years, I would, you know, I'd give these principles, once I realized what, a, you know, uh, the core value of a principle, I'd, I'd kind of give it a name. And after about 12 principles, I ran out of names. I ran out of, after that, I could not find any print, any techniques that were not covered in those principles. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do here in this podcast is I'm going to read out, initially I'm going to go through the, the principles, and there were 12 of them, and they some of them sound a little weird, so they might not sound much like horse training to start with, but once I explain them, it'll become more clear. But I'm going to go through these 12, I'm going to name these 12 principles, and then I'm going to break them down and kind of do what I did in the TV show, give you, uh, tell you what the principle is all about, and then give you a, a very common example of how that principle would work 
in your day-to-day training of your horse. So here we go. We are about to, I'm going to list the 12 principles. Principle number one, the don't go to bed angry principle. Number two, the work with the horse you have today principle. Number three, make the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy. Number four, choose where you work and choose where you rest. Number five, the Donkey Kong principle. Number six, they need to know the answer before you ask the question. Number seven is change one thing at a time. Number eight is do the opposite. Number nine is create a tool before you use a tool. Number 10 is anticipation is your best friend or your worst enemy. Number 11 is the application of your aids. And number 12 is called isolate, separate and recombine. So let's start out talking about principle number one, the don't go to bed angry principle. And I got the name of this from the, the, you know, if anybody listening here is married, you at your wedding, you probably had an older, wiser family member approach you at your wedding and said, now let me tell you the secret to a happy marriage is don't go to bed angry. And what does don't go to, that, what does that mean? What that means is if there's any tension built up between the two of you during the day, before you go to bed at night, resolve that so that you wake up the next morning and it's it's a brand new day. You're not carrying any baggage from anything that may have happened the day before. And, you know, if if you think about, if you're in a long-term relationship and if you think about, if you've ever had a knockdown, drag-out argument about something really, really simple, think back to the Think back to the first day of your honeymoon. Was that an issue then? Like the first day of your honeymoon, was there a knockdown, drag out argument about it then? If there wasn't a knockdown, drag out argument on the first day of your honeymoon about that particular thing, then there's quite a possibility the knockdown, drag out argument you just had was not about that, but it's a buildup of stuff. And it's what the, the you know, in the thera- therapeutic and the scientific community might call trigger stacking. You know, it's kind of like you have a bad day at work, then there's a lot of traffic on the way home and people are driving like idiots and then you go to the grocery store and then the the store is full of people and you just want to get home and cook dinner and then you get home and you get out of the car carrying the groceries and the plastic bag rips. Oops, sorry, not plastic bag. We don't use plastic bags these days. Actually, we're in COVID now, so plastic bags have come back. But anyway, the bag that you're carrying your groceries in rips and, you know, the orange juice gets spilled all over the driveway and then you're picking that up and then you stub your toe coming to the house and then you come into the house and realise that your kids have not cleaned up after themselves and there's dirty dishes on the table or whatever and you go off at your kids, okay? There's quite a possibility that if you'd had a great day at work and an easy drive home and you went to the grocery store and it was all simple and you walked in the house and you're in a good mood and you looked and the kids had not cleaned up after themselves, you might go, Hey, kids, do you think you could clean this up? But because of that trigger stacking, all that stuff that's building up, then you have this knockdown, drag out argument about something that probably is not worthy of that. And where's the, where this is related to horses is a few years ago in England, I was doing a clinic and there was a girl watching and she said, well, you know, I was explaining about training horses and things like that. And there was a girl watching and she said, so... That's all understandable, but she said, what do you do with a crazy horse? And I said, I don't know, what kind of crazy is your horse? And she said, well, my horse is the kind of crazy where I go hacking out, which in, it's in, you know, it's called hacking out in England in 
the US it's called trail riding. In New Zealand it's called trekking, I believe. And she said, I'll go hacking out on my horse and I'll be riding along and a rabbit will run into the wet grass and he'll kind of, he not really do much. He just kind of looks at it and steps sideways a little bit. And I go a bit further and another rabbit runs out and he kind of does the same thing. He just kind of jumps in place and steps sideways a little bit, but doesn't really bother him. And then another one and another one. And I've been hacking out for two hours. My horse has seen 12 rabbits and none of them really bothered him. And then the 13th rabbit jumps out of the bushes and he freaks out and bucks me off and runs home. What do you do with an idiot horse like that? And I, I said, well, the, 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 the thing about this is your horse is not an idiot. What has possibly happened is your horse has been, let's say he left home and he was completely relaxed. He's riding along and the rabbit jumps out of the bushes and <gasps> he gets a little fright. And he holds on to that little bit of concern. Then he goes a little bit further and <gasps> gets another little bit of a fright. And now he's holding on to two bits of concern, two rabbits worth of concern. And then <gasps> three and then <gasps> four. And as time goes on, he starts to, you know, he gets more and more concern built up inside until it gets to the point where he cannot keep it inside anymore. And I said, in this case, your horse obviously has a 12 rabbit limit. He can hold those 12 rabbits inside. He can control himself with those 12 rabbits. But once you get more than 12 rabbits worth of worry in there, it overflows. And so what the, the don't go to bed angry principle is about is you have to have relaxation to start with. Okay. First thing, horse has to be relaxed before you even try to teach them anything. You cannot teach them anything when they're not relaxed. Okay. You can't teach them anything good when they're not relaxed. And so... Not only do you have to start out relaxed, as you go along with your horse, if you notice some tension building up, you've got to get them back to a relaxed state before you go any further. And it's that ability to reset themselves. It's that ability to come down from being up. It's that ability to go from the sympathetic nervous system back to the parasympathetic nervous system that is basically the, I mean, the reason this this principle is first is because if you don't have relaxation or the ability to reset themselves, you're going to have a lot of trouble with horses. And, it, you know, it's not just horses. So my wife, Robin, if you've been listening to the podcast, you will know that she has suffered from anxiety. She did a podcast a little while ago about a panic attack she had and how Jane Pike helped her through it. But we, you know, not long after we got married, Robin had a panic attack one night in the middle of the night. And I had to take her to the hospital at two o'clock in the morning. And it was my first experience with anybody having a panic attack. Robin, just so you know, Robin had, had been having panic attacks before she married me. So it wasn't me. Uh, but, you know, I took her to the hospital at two o'clock in the morning and a doctor checks her completely out. And he looks at it and he says, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. And she turned. So this is a doctor. Okay. He's been to medical school. He knows what he's talking about. And he told her that. And she turned and looked at me and she said, I'm going to die. Okay. It doesn't matter what the doctor tells you when you're having a panic attack. If you have a panic attack, you believe you're going to die. And Robin had panic attacks for, oh, I'd say 15 years. And she'd never got down out of one without it basically being two hours of gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And basically a nervous system gets completely flooded and then she's just exhausted afterwards and, and it goes away. But she's she had never been able to bring herself down from having one. Once it started, she was it was a panic attack and then you just had to wait for it to, to run its course. 
And at the time, yeah, probably about 15 years into a marriage, a client of mine that used to get nervous about showing, I said to her, what you can do at home is I would close your eyes and sit down and put yourself in a mental state like you're walking in the show ring. And if you start to get nervous thinking about that, just get yourself, focus on your breathing or something and get yourself back down. The lady's name was Anna. And so Anna had been doing this and she told Robin about that. So Robin kind of got it for me through through Anna. But So she told Robin about that. So Robin said to me, you know what I think I'm going to start doing? I'm going to start, I'm going to, on a day when I'm completely relaxed, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to think about something that starts to make me a little bit concerned. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to do some box breathing. So, you know, in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four, in for four. And she said, I'm going to do that until I come back down again. I think that would be that would be good for my panic attacks. And so, and I talk about this a lot at clinics with horses. And so I started talking about that particular exercise that my wife was going to do at clinics. And I'd come home from a clinic and say, hey, I told the story about you and your exercises. Have you been doing them? And she goes, oh, no, really, I haven't really got around to it. And so she really hadn't been doing them very much. But then at some point in time, we were in, in another country and we're, we're, we had to take a plane, a two-hour flight from one place to another. And I always go to sleep on planes. I, I go to sleep before they take off and I wake up when, they, when, they, when we land. And when we landed, I woke up and I looked at Robin and she was kind of pale looking. Oh, I forgot to mention, Robin has always been a nervous flyer and she'd never had a panic attack on a plane. So I always imagined if she had a panic attack on a plane, they would have to put her in a straitjacket because she would lose her mind. Anyway, so this time when we landed, I looked at her and she's a little bit pale looking. And I said, are you okay, hon? She goes, well, I had a panic attack. I'm like, you had a panic attack. How did you survive that? I mean, that that would have been, you would have had to have been strapped to your seat. And she said, actually, no, I didn't actually have a panic attack. She said, I've been, what I've been doing is doing that exercise a little bit at home. And so what happened was I started to have a panic attack. And so then I just started focusing on my breathing and I got myself back down to a relaxed state just from doing the, the little breathing stuff I've been doing at home. And so if you think about this, a lot of people say, so, you know, what do you do with a horse, you know, how do you prepare a horse for situations that are out of their control? Okay, I, I, you can't prepare a horse for everything. And I tell them you don't need to prepare a horse for everything. You need to teach a horse how to reset their nervous system because my wife, who is a bad flyer, one, and two, has panic attacks, got herself out of a panic attack on a Boeing 747 without actually having a Boeing 747 to, at home to practice with. The only thing that she did was she at home she'd start out relaxed, she'd get herself a little bit uptight and get herself back down, just step one. Basically, she'd give herself one rabbit worth of worry and then she'd work on it till she got out of that one rabbit's worth of worry. And a panic attack is one rabbit worth of worry, which gives you two, which gives you three, which gives you six, which gives you nine, which gives you, you know, it just goes on and on from there. But if you cannot get past one rabbit worth of worry, you get one rabbit worth of worry and you spit that rabbit worth of worry back out. Now you're back to zero rabbits, back to zero worry. And so that's all that Robin had done there, but she didn't have a... Boeing 747, you know, she didn't need an aeroplane to practice 
getting out of a panic attack on an airplane. And so if you guys have listened to the first two podcasts about um, – well, the first one was about the changes I've made in things I do with horses and the second one was about the science of connection. I've found that, you know, once I started to understand polyvagal theory and how, you know, horses are mammals and they, they need that social interaction and that is what helps them be calm. And I've talked about this before, I think, but I'll reiterate it here, that your horse, the thing that a herd provides for horses is safety, but the, the safety is not in the physicality of the herd. Like there's no big tough guys in the herd that, that are going to beat up the bad guys. Okay, What horses get from the herd is the awareness of the herd, the group awareness, and that's what keeps them safe. So instead of having one alarm system, if there's 10 horses, there's 10 alarm systems, you know, like they read each other's energies and if a horse on the other side of the herd sees something scary, his energy changes and it ripples through the herd and you will get the message on this side and you can all get up and run or whatever. And so probably the biggest thing I think with horses is the whole being able to be present and let them know you you notice all the little things. That's probably the, for me, I mean, there's different ways of going about having a horse relax. And I'm doing it totally differently now than I used to. But it's, it's, it's all the same thing. It all falls under the same principle. I just think I'm doing a better job of it these days. But the the don't go to bed angry principle, that's that's number one. First, is your horse relaxed? If he's not, you've got to take steps to get them relaxed. And then as you are training, if you, or as you're interacting with them, whatever, if you notice them lose relaxation, you've got to be able to get them back to relaxation. But you can't get back to relaxation when they're having a huge problem like my wife having a panic attack, panic attack, if you haven't practiced getting them back to relaxation when you're not having a problem. And the, the Navy SEALs have a saying, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your preparation. And so this is where this don't go to bed angry principle comes in. It's so, so important. I remember a number of years ago, I was retraining a, uh, a an eventing horse for some um, eventing trainers in the area here. And she came to me with a bucking problem, I think. And so I went through all the groundwork and, you know, I would do it all differently these days, you know, but still, I went through all the groundwork and the day I was going to start riding her, I messaged them the day before and I said to the owners, I'm going to start riding that mare tomorrow. And they said, well, can we come and watch? Because, you know, she bucks. So obviously they're going to think they're going to come see the rodeo. And... They came over and I had a friend from Australia staying with us at the time. And, and so I take this mare, I get this mare ready, you know, I'm in the round pen and I get her up beside the mounting block and I'm going to get on her. And my friend is over by the gate and so are the, it's a mother and daughter, a venting trainer that own this horse. They're over by the gate. Anyway, I go to get on and she can't stand still by the mounting block. Like I go to put my foot in the stirrup and she goes to walk off and get all tense and do all sorts of things. And I turned to the mother and daughter and I said, have you ever had any mounting problems with her? And they said, no, no, we've never had any mounting problems with her. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, so I spent probably the next half an hour working on having her be relaxed while I get on her because as I was trying to get on her, she was losing relaxation. And so I worked on that for a while and probably half an hour it took me. And then when I went, when I finally got on, I got on on a completely loose rein and she just stood there. And 
the daughter whispered to the mother, and the only reason I know this is because my friend was standing over by him. The daughter whispered to the mother, oh my God, she's never stood still for me to get on before. So the, I, I asked this person, have you ever had any mounting issues? And she said, no, never had any mounting issues. But then when the mare stands still in a loose rein when I get on, she whispers to her mum, my God, she's never stood that, she's never stood still like that to get on before. If you don't recognize that as losing relaxation, it goes on from there. It gets much worse from there. I never had a bucking problem with the mare, but I also didn't skip the little steps and I didn't, and I didn't have to fix any bucking. It's not like, you know, what's funny is I, I used to get some horses that had behavioral issues from people in, let's say other disciplines and some of them, I'd heard indirectly, you know, through a third party that some of them sent me the horse because I wear a cowboy hat. And so obviously I'm going to cowboy them through the problems, but that is the furthest thing from the truth. But you've just got to realize those little things build up. You know, the, the place I was training out of at the time, uh, the guy that owned the place had a horse who was an Olympic jumping horse. Okay, he'd been to the Olympics in the jumping. He was a stallion. And he decided he wanted to breed this stallion. And he, he heard on the grapevine that you can sell jumping prospects for 100000 a pop. And so he started breeding this stallion. He wasn't a horse guy. He was a money guy. And um, when I first moved into the place, he had a few horses by this warm blood stallion that he wanted me to start. And the first one I started was a black warm blood stallion. If anybody's seen any of my really old YouTube videos, there was like some groundwork with this horse and there was the first ride outside and the whole bit. Um, so when I first started this horse, I did all the groundwork and I got him really, really good with the groundwork. And then what I do is I go through the saddling process and get that good. And then what I do is I get them just as good at the groundwork with the saddle as they were without the saddle. And this horse really had a hard time being as good with the groundwork with the saddle on as he was with the saddle off. And he kind of couldn't, he couldn't process information out of both eyes at the same time. So if I'm doing groundwork with him with the saddle on, I'm in his left eye, but oh, there's a stirrup in my right eye and, you know, he'd have a bit of a buck, of, buck around. And it took me a month, and I was working with him six days a week, it took me a month to get him as good with the saddle on as he was without the saddle. Okay, so that's, that's a whole month working on nothing but that six days a week. And... Then he went on, and if you've seen the YouTube video of my first ride outside, walk, trot, canter on a loose rein in a halter, you know, and this is a warm blood stallion that could have been an, could have been an issue, you know. And then I then started a few others by the same stallion, and they were exactly the same. That's that was their that was their Achilles heel sort of thing. That was that problem that they were. That's the having that saddle on and being as good with it on as they were without it. That was, their, that was their problem. And so there was a jumping trainer I was talking to one time who I knew had had several horses by that same stallion. And I said to her, I said, so what were they like for you? She goes, oh, they were weird. She says, I tell you what, so weird. She said, I had one one time. He, he could jump up to a meter. Okay, so for Americans, that's 3.3 feet. He could jump up to a meter, but if you went to a meter five, and so another, you know, five centimeters is two inches, two, five centimeters is two and a half inches, I think. 
if you went to a meet of five, he'd just lose his mind. She said, I was at a, a jumping competition one time and we jumped around at a meter. Then they put it up to a meter five and the first fence he went over, he then freaked out and ran off and he actually ran out of the arena, like ran through the fence, ran through a crowd of people just out of nowhere. And I said to her, so just offhand, what was he like to saddle? And she said, oh, he was perfectly fine to saddle. And I said, so when you saddle him, you could just throw the lead rope on the, on the ground in the barn aisle and walk into the tack room and get the saddle and bring it out and put the saddle on him. And she says, oh, no, 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 you had to have two grooms hold him while you put the saddle on. And so think about this. This is a horse who, for me, and I'm relatively experienced at working with horses, took me a month to get him perfectly good with the saddle. But this person is going to have two grooms hold him while they put the saddle on. So this is a bit of relax. We're losing relaxation right here. And then they, let, he puts, they put the saddle on and they start riding him. Then they ride him at the walk and they ride him at the trot. They ride him at the canter. Then they start riding him over ground rails and they start riding him over little cross rails, little X's, you know. Then they start going over jumps and he can hold it all together. He can hold it together up to a meter. And then anything over a meter... It's like the 13th rabbit, he loses his mind. And she said, out of nowhere, this horse would just lose his mind. He didn't lose it out of nowhere. He just, you know, they just weren't paying attention to the signs, the signs that he was not relaxed. If you've got to have two people hold your horse while he puts the saddle, while the saddle goes on, he doesn't want the saddle on yet. And I say yet, because everything, every problem is work throughable. And every problem is usually a core, you know, it's usually a number of things that, that add, uh, add it up. And if you can, if you can take the time when they start to lose relaxation to stay at that point until you can get the relaxation back. And for me with this warm blood staying, it was a month. And you probably think a month just to get him as good with the saddle on without the saddle, that's, that's too long. This horse is going to be a jumping horse. He's going to jump till he's 20. A month is nothing at this point in time, you know, and so you've really got to look at, you really got to look at that. You know, if you, if you cut corners at this point in time, you know, think about the amount of tension that horse would have been carrying. I bet he was really, you know, he was probably crooked. He probably leant on your inside leg. He probably leant on your outside rein. He probably leant on a lot of things because he was tense. Whereas if, like I said, if you've watched the, the YouTube video of my first ride outside in the big arena, which is, you know, 150 feet wide, 300 feet long, so 50 meters by 100 meters, I first ride outside, I walk, trot and canter, on a loose rein without steering him. And this horse just ba -dump, ba dump carries me all over the place. And it makes it look like, oh, wow, you know what you're doing. But it's not so much the talent doesn't lie in what I did on the first ride outside. I just sat on him, really, and asked him to go. The talent lies in having the, the patience and the wherewithal to recognise when they're starting to lose that relaxation. And I, 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 can't, I just can't stress that enough that, that, you know, you've got to be able to get those horses relaxed first. And then as you go along through your training, you've got to make sure if they lose relaxation, you can get it back again. You know, and I could do a whole podcast on how to get the relaxation. But for me, probably the biggest thing is, is just communication with the horse, you know, just being aware of the subtle the subtle things horses do to tell you that they're getting concerned and when they do, just pause. You don't, there's no fixing. You don't have to fix it. You just have to pause, slow down what you're doing, stop what you're doing 
and recognize they're starting to get concerned. And most of the time, the concern will go away because this comes back to polyvagal theory. You know, when you recognize they're getting concerned, that's that attunement piece. That's that sense of being seen, being heard, feeling felt, getting gotten. That's the, and that itself, you know, that part of the, 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 the nervous system, that is what relaxes them right there is when they, when they feel felt and get gotten. You know, otherwise they may be standing still, but they're in that, you know, they're in that dorsal vagal complex, which is more of the freeze response rather than that, that, um, ventral vagal complex, which is the, you know, it's the, it's the relaxed, you know, we're standing still, but we're standing still because we're relaxed. We're not standing still because we're frozen. And so, you know, like I said, I could do a whole podcast on that, but if you go back to podcast number two, the science of connection, that will help you understand that uh, a little bit more if you don't get it yet. So the next principle I want to talk about, principle number two, which is called work with the horse you have today. And this is really about the human factor, the human part, the your part of the equation, what you bring to it. And the reason it was called work with the horse you have today is because in order for you to make a good decision to how to respond to what's going on in front of you. And notice I just didn't say react, I said respond. You need to be able to take into account what's happening right now. You also know need to know what happened yesterday, but you can't bring you can't bring yesterday's problems into today. You can't, you know, or you can't bring the whole judgments like, oh, my horse is an Arab, so she's supposed to be this, or my horse is a red mare, she's supposed to be this, or my horse is a whatever. It's, it's a, you know, this whole principle is about working with the horse you have today, which is more like working with the horse you have right now. What's going on right in front of me? Which means you cannot, your decisions cannot have anything to do with the fact you had an argument with your boss this morning or with your husband or with your wife or with your kids or whatever. You really need to be in the moment. So you need to be present. And so this, you know, the whole work with the horse you have today really has to do with the human being able to be present and not just present with with what's going on with the horse but present with themselves too and there's a a lady that lives near us here named Beth and Beth has a, a business called the Circle Up Experience and she's a equine assisted therapist and my wife's been over and helped her with some different corporate things and Beth has this thing that she calls the four Oh, I forget what the word is. Not the four agreements, because that's Stephen Covey, I think, but the four something or others of any interaction between two sentient beings. And the first one is, number one is, what's going on with you? Number two is, what's going on with them? The other person you're conversing with. Number three is, what's going on between the two of us? And number four is what's going on in our surroundings. And with horses, most people I see having trouble with their horses, they're very aware of number two and number four. They're very aware of what's going on with their horse and they're very aware of what's going on in the surroundings. The wind is blowing, it's cold, there's a plastic bag over there, that person's spooking my horse, that sort of thing. But what they don't take into account is number one, what's going on with me? What's going on inside me? Where's my energy? Where's my mind? Where's my thoughts? Where's my intentions? And number three, which is what's going on between me and my horse. And, you know, 
there's a big part of that that's the number one part, which is what's going on with me. So you really have to understand that horses, they can basically read your mind. They can read your energy. They can read your intentions. And what you, you know, the thoughts you have in your head, the, the, the you know, what's going on in your head and what's going on internally in you probably makes more of a difference to your horse than what you actually physically do because even the physical things you do will be tainted a bit by your you know what you're thinking about and what your internal energy is and so you really it really comes down to being able to you know having self-control control over your control over your thoughts you know those like I said horses can really read all of that stuff and they tend I, I think it makes more of a difference difference what you're thinking and how you're feeling and what your internal dialogue is more so than the the outer things, the, the physical things you actually do to your horse. If you've got – and that's where, you know, horses are used a lot in equine-assisted therapy and one reason they are used that way is because they're very, very good at detecting incongruent behaviour. And incongruent behaviour is basically – when your inner landscape and your outer landscape don't match up. You know, what's going on internally and what's going on externally are at odds with each other. And, you know, that's where you've heard, you've heard my friend Jane Pike on the, the, the podcast a few times. Jane Pike says the whole fake it till you make it thing with horses is BS. You know, and I agree with her. I think you're better off, if you're scared, letting them know, letting them know how scared you are instead of trying to put on a brave front but being scared inside because I think that weirds horses out more than anything else. Like if you are just honest with yourself and honest with them, it'll go a long way. But, yeah, so horses are really good at reading our energy and all that sort of stuff. And if you've really got to be careful about the thoughts you think. You know, I've talked about Jane Pike before, but I'll go over this again if you haven't heard this bit. Jane has a saying where she says you cannot – you cannot move away from something, you can only move towards something. And basically what she means by that is you cannot think about what you don't want. You can only think about, you know, you can't not think about something. Uh, Jane talks about the big blue tree. She says, right now I want you to not think about a big blue tree. And while you're not thinking about a big blue tree, I want you to not think about some green grass in front of the big blue tree that you're not thinking about. And while you're not thinking about the big blue tree and the green grass, I also want you to not think about a yellow bird that's in the big blue tree that you're not thinking about that's on top of the green grass that you're not thinking about. And what do you have right now? You have a perfectly good picture in your head of a big blue tree, green grass, yellow bird. So you can't not think about things. You can only think about things. You can only think about... So you've got to focus on what you want instead of what you don't want. And, and when you're dealing with a horse who picks up on all that stuff, it's really all about controlling your mind. It's the work with the horse you have today principle, but really it's the human factor principle. It's, it's, it's you have to be able to control your mind first. Your mind controls your body. And if you think about this right now, let's just do a little experiment. Let's say, pretend you've got a, in your lap, you've got a chopping board, or you've got a chopping board on a table right in front of you, Okay kitchen chopping board and on that chopping board you've got an orange sitting there and that orange is the nicest most perfectly spherical round orange you've ever seen your entire life and it's a beautiful orange color there's no blemishes it's just perfect and it's been in the refrigerator and there's a bit of condensation running down the side of the orange you can see it 
and you've got a car, a big kitchen knife in your hand and you take that kitchen knife and you and it's very sharp and you go thunk and you just cut that orange in half and the two halves of the orange roll back and forth a bit of juice runs out of them and then you get one of those halves and thunk you cut it in half and now you've got two quarters of an orange sitting there and there's some juice coming out of them and you pick one of those quarters of an orange up and you bring it up towards your nose but as you pick it up you squeeze it a little bit of juice runs out of it and runs down your hand and runs down your wrist a little bit you can feel it running down your wrist there and you bring that orange up to your nose and you sniff it oh and it smells so good if you've done this little experiment right right now you'll be salivating and if You've done it right and you're salivating. You've got to think, well, where did the salivation come from? You know on a conscious level there is no orange. But because you mentally pictured that orange so well, it caused your brain to send out chemicals to your body to tell you to produce some saliva to wash down the orange that you're about to eat, even though you know for a fact there is no orange. And it's kind of the same thing with your horses. If you are picturing worst-case scenarios all the time when you're around your horse, Okay, it doesn't matter what they're doing now, but if, if, you know, if, if you're picturing the one time you got bucked off a horse when you were a kid or whatever it is right now, that's going to cause all sorts of stress chemicals to flood your body. They're going to pick up on that stuff and that's really going to affect how your horse responds to that situation and it doesn't change the situation, it just changes how they respond to the situation because of how you responded to the situation. So it's, you know, the whole work with the horse you have today principle is really about being able to control your mind. That's, that's it. That's because you can't control your body if you can't control your mind. And, you know, I often at clinics recommend to people that they have some sort of a, a meditation practice because all the meditation practice is, is controlling what your mind thinks about when nothing else is going on. You sit down in a chair and all you have to do is focus on your breathing. That's all you're going to do. Focus on the breath going in your nose. Feel your abdomen filling up. Feel your abdomen going back down and the air coming out your nose. And anybody, you know, a lot of times at clinics when I ask if anybody's ever done any meditating, a lot of people will raise their hand but they also have a funny look on their face and I say has anybody here ever tried to meditate and find that you can't meditate and everybody's hand shoots up like yeah I can't meditate and I'll say well why is it you think you can't meditate and they say well I just can't still my mind my mind's all over the place you know it just it just goes here and there and that's most people will say that's why they think they can't meditate and I'm a big fan of an American philosopher named Wayne Dyer, especially one of his quotes that says, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I usually about that point in time spit that quote out and then I'm going to say, I'm going to blow your mind about your meditation practice. So I say, I'm going to tell you what I think your meditation practice sounds like in your head and you tell me if it's right or wrong. And so you you sit down and you're supposed to be focusing on your breathing and you breathe in, you feel the air go in your nostrils and you feel your abdomen rise and I feel my abdomen go down and I feel the air go out my nostrils and I feel the air go in my nostrils. I'm hungry. I wonder what's for dinner. I think I'm having chicken for dinner. 
I wonder when that chicken was alive. Was it a boy chicken or a girl chicken? I mean, you know, you can tell when they're fully grown, but what about when they're little, the little yellow things? How do you tell a boy chicken from a girl chicken then? You know, like the, like the sort of chickens you, you get at, see at Easter time. Oh, Easter time. I love Easter time. I get a four-day long weekend and I get to have chocolate. Oh, I love chocolate. Oh, hang on. I'm supposed to be thinking about my breathing. And right then, everybody laughs. They're like, yes, that's what my that's what my meditation practice is exactly. That's exactly how it goes. And I said, do you realize that you guys can all meditate really well? And they go, no, we can't. We can't stop thinking about things. And I said, that's not what you were trying to do. Think about, so if you've ever listened to Eckhart Tolle, he says, when you become aware that you're not present, you are present. So what happens with that meditation practice there is people start to focus on their breathing and then they get lost and they think about being hungry, but they're not aware they're thinking about being hungry. And then they're thinking about chicken and they're not aware they're thinking about chicken. And then they're thinking about boy chickens, girl chickens. They're not aware they're thinking about that. Then they start thinking about Easter and they're not aware they're thinking about Easter. And then they start thinking about chocolate and they're not aware they're thinking about chocolate. And then they go, oh, hang on. I'm supposed to be thinking about my breathing right then. You are meditating. Give yourself a clap, pat yourself on the back. There's a really good book that I actually talked about in my book podcast called Mind Hacking by Sir John Hargraves. And he says, when you do your meditation practice, every time you realize that you've gotten off track and you realize you're off track, give yourself a point. Okay, so and this is, this is so relative to horse training is right then when it goes wrong and you realize it's gone wrong, you're like, hey, good, give yourself a point. And so it's, it's just about your perception of what's happening right then most people say i can't meditate because they get it wrong but actually the instant they realized they were getting it wrong they were getting it right because they were aware of their thoughts so it's such a huge part of being around horses is being able to control the things that you think about and the ability, I'd say more importantly than that, or this is part of it, is the ability to be present without having that story in your head. And I think I've talked about this before in the podcast, but there's an old Ray Hunt saying that says, they know when you know and they know when you don't. And I used to think that saying meant they know when you know what you're doing and they know when you don't know what you're doing. You know, they know if you know how to be around horses and they know if you don't know how to be around horses. But a few years ago, I, I read an article by someone who was around Ray Hunt quite a bit. And he said, when you're around your horse, you need to, you need to be aware of what their eyes are doing, and what their ears are doing, and what their muzzles are doing, what their nostrils are doing, what their breathing's doing, what their feet are doing. Are their feet standing square? Are they standing a little bit braced? Is their tail clamped? Is it up? Is it out? Is it relaxed? What's their top line look like? And... He said, you need to be aware of all those things. You know what, you need to know what all those things are doing because they know when you know and they know when you don't. So they know when you are present, okay? They can read the story in your head. So if you are present and observing them, they get a feel. And this comes back to the last principle, the don't go to bed angry principle. If you are present, they will be a lot more relaxed than if you're not present. If you're thinking about what you're having for dinner or big blue trees or Anything that's not what's right there in front of them, they don't feel as relaxed around you because, like I said, their sense of security comes from the awareness of the herd. And if you can provide that awareness for them, 
you become part of the herd. You don't have to act like a horse, you know. You don't have to have four legs and a tail and go... If you believe the movies, because all horses in movies snort and whinny all the time. But you, if you can be present, and being present not only helps that part with the horse, but also helps you be able to interpret what's going on without having the story about, well, what if he did this or what if he did that? But he did this yesterday. If he did something, you know, a horse I had six years ago did this. And all those things cloud your judgment. And so if you think about these first two principles, first principle is they don't go to bed angry principle, and that's basically about your horse's mental health. The second principle, which is work with the horse you have today, is really about human mental health. And Maybe those principle. I think maybe the principle should be the other way around, that maybe the, the work with the horse you have today principle, that comes first because you cannot help your horse with their level of relaxation if you have not helped yourself with your level of relaxation and presence. It's like Robin's friend Beth, you know, step one, what's going on with you? Step two, what's going on with them? And these are basically the first two principles. Step one is what's going on with you, which is work with the horse you have today principle and step two what's going on with them and that's about you know the don't go to bed angry principle you know you've got to get them relaxed first and then it goes on from there but i think these first two principles really are the underlying principles principles sorry behind everything from here on out so the next principle i want to talk about is called the make the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy principle and uh, you know some people you know, take this the wrong way and they focus on the wrong thing hard. Uh, this, all this, really, this principle is really about making the right thing easy. You could almost take the other part out and make the wrong thing hard, okay? Some people tend to think that means you punish the horse. That thing, They think that means you set the horse up for failure. They think it means a lot of things. But really, what it really means is make it easy to do the right thing. Okay, all the right thing has to be is easier than the wrong thing. It doesn't have to be, the wrong thing doesn't necessarily have to be hard. And a lot of times at clinics or horse expos and stuff, I will have everybody in the stands stand up. I'll say, can everybody stand up for me? And they all stand up and I go, okay, does anybody here think standing up is hard? And they're kind of like down at their feet and like, no. I said, okay, everybody go ahead and sit back down. So everybody sits down and I said, okay, does everybody here think that sitting is easier than standing up? And everybody starts nodding. I'm like, well, that's the wrong thing, hard and the right thing, easy principle, okay? When you were standing up, you didn't feel like you were being tortured or having anybody's doing anything nasty to you. But we're going to, you know, if this was a horse expo and I've got an hour and a half session to do, if I said, if I offered you two choices stand up for the next hour and a half or sit for the next hour and a half, which one of those would you choose? And then everybody goes, well, we choose to sit down. And I said, but while you're standing up, you're not feeling abused or neglected or picked on or, you know. So, you know, it's it's not necessarily a, the, the, the wrong thing hard part of this thing, or sometimes the saying is said, you know, make the wrong thing difficult. It's not really about how hard or difficult that part is. It's about how the right thing is easier than the wrong thing. Because you have to understand that horses are noticing these things all the time. You know, they're noticing where is, you know, you think about a horse standing out in a pasture and it's cold and there's a wind blowing. 
they will move themselves to the place where they can be out of the wind. Okay, they'll make it easy for themselves. And so, you know, Mother Nature makes the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy, but they're always looking for that place of comfort. And so you have to make sure that the thing you want them to do, there's more comfort there than the thing you don't want them to do. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to do anything to them when they're doing the wrong thing, but you just have to make it easier with the right thing. And, you know, think about if if you're a, a dressage rider or an English rider, think about, you know, the elasticity of your hands on the reins. If you if you ask for something with the reins and they give, you then release. Then you've just made that easy. Or if you ask them to go forward with your seat and your leg and they go forward, you don't leave your leg on because then you've, you know, you think about, think about let's say your horse is standing still and you want to go forward. You want your horse to walk. So in this case, continuing to stand still would be the wrong thing and walking forward would be the right thing. If you apply leg when they're standing still and when they walk forward, you keep applying leg, there is really no difference in pressure between doing the wrong thing and doing the right thing. The only difference is, is doing the right thing is going to be more physically exertion for them than doing the wrong thing, which is standing still. So the horse is then going to choose to do the one that's easiest for them, if that makes sense there. And, you know, you just got to think that horses are always, always comparing things. I mean, that's, that's one of their superpowers, you know. And so we use that to help us train them. You know, something I, I hear from people a lot is like, oh, my horse is lazy and I've got to keep kicking him to keep him going. If you think about you, so I, I tell people, so do you want him to go or not go? And they say, no, I want him to go. And I said, well, why are you kicking him while he's going? And they say, well, if I stop kicking him, he'll stop. And I said, okay, so how do you get your horse to stop? And they go, well, you know, all I have to do with him is stop kicking him and he stops. And I said, okay, so what you've taught your horse is if you stand still, I won't be kicking you. And if you are going, I'll be kicking you. You need to do the opposite. I said, I would ask him to go, and I'm not saying you've got to kick your horse, but let's go in this, these, this is what these people were doing. Your horse is standing still and you want him to go. And so once you ask him to go, going would be the right thing, stopping would be the wrong thing. So he stopped, he's standing still, add leg, and when he goes, as he takes one step, stop adding leg. And they say, but he'll stop. And I said, well, good, then you can add leg again. And as soon as he goes, stop adding leg. And when he stops, add leg. And when he goes, release your leg. And after a while, your horse will go, oh, all I have to do is walk and you won't add leg. Well, I can do that. I thought, you know, I thought if I walked, you'd be kicking on me. And if I was standing still, you wouldn't be kicking on me. And where I first uh, really started understanding this was I went to a, years ago when I was a young running trainer, I went to a, went to a, a clinic by a, a running trainer named Randy Paul and uh you know, Randy's run the reigning fraternity. He's one of the world's greatest horsemen. You know, his father was a horse trainer. He's been around horse training forever. And at this clinic, there was a guy there who had a fully trained reigning horse that he bought from someone else. And this guy was a, I think he was a saddlebred trainer, but he bought this reigning horse for fun, you know, kind of like a bit of a, a toy. And in this clinic, uh, when it came to the spinning portion of them, the the saddlebred, the, the Randy Paul said to the saddlebred trainer, "Okay, bring your horse out here and let's see him spin." And so the saddlebred trainer brings his horse out there and pulls the rein across his neck, pushes his leg into the horse's side, and clucks <coughs> like this. And the horse goes step, 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 
step, the world's slowest spin. Okay, and this guy, there's only three aids you've got on a reining horse, your rein, your leg, and your voice. And he's using all three of them about as much as you can use them. And this horse is going as slow as you can go. And you, you would tend to think, oh, well, that horse, he's got no desire to go. I mean, I'm doing everything I can do and he won't go. But the thing was, this horse started spinning and there was no release of pressure when he started spinning. This guy's still pulling, still kicking and still clucking. And so Randy said, okay, stop, let's, let's start again. What I want you to do is just move your hand across his neck. When you move your hand across his neck, when you lay that outside rein on his neck, he's supposed to turn. I know this horse is trained to turn. He should turn. And this guy looks at him and says he won't. And Randy goes, that's okay. No big deal. Just lay your rein across his neck. Now, bump with your leg. The horse didn't move, sorry. So Randy says, now bump with your leg. The guy bumps with his leg and the horse starts to turn. And Randy says, okay, just put your hand back down in the middle of his neck and take your leg off. And of course, the horse stops. And then Randy says, okay, move your hand, bump your leg. And the horse starts to move. And he says, now put your hand back in the middle and release your leg. And they did this over and over and over. And after a while, the horse started to realize when I stop is when the rein and the leg goes on. And when I go is when it goes away. So pretty soon, this guy can move his hand across the horse's neck. And the horse starts to spin just off the rein moving across his neck, no leg. Because he knows how to avoid the leg, you know, you know. So what he was doing, he was making the wrong thing, which is not spinning easy and making spinning the hard thing. And this went on for, you know, five or ten minutes and pretty soon he can lay his rein across that neck and that horse spins pretty good. And then Randy says to him, go ahead and cluck once. And this is the same horse this guy was going <coughs> at the start of the whole thing with no response. This guy clucks once and this horse dropped to his, almost dropped to his belly and spun around really, really fast. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, that was amazing. And at the time I was doing the same thing. When I wanted my horse to spin, the whole time he was spinning, I was keeping up my ask of it. And that really made me go home and think about stuff. And that's really where the principles of training came from because I, I, that was the first technique I saw that was like, that's revolutionary. That's mind-boggling to me. And then I learned another technique to do with circles, having a horse lope circles on a loose rein that was by a different trainer. It's a different technique. But that's when I went, oh, the principle is when they're doing what you want, leave them alone. Don't keep asking them when you're doing what you want. And that might seem pretty logical to most of you guys, but at the time it was revolutionary for me. And so, you know, that's all about making the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy. But it's not – if you think about that reining horse spinning – he actually got to use less pressure and get the horse to perform way more. And he, all it was was deciding when to apply that pressure and when to release it. And, and instead of keeping it on when the horse was doing the right thing, he released it when the horse was doing the right thing. You know, a number of years ago, we made up a T-shirt and on the back it said, make the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy. But make was in huge big letters and then in small letters it said the wrong thing. Uh, it said make in huge big letters at the top and then the next line was small and it said the wrong and then the next line was big and it said thing and then the next line was hard it was, the next line was really small and it said hard and the next line was really small and it said and the right things and then at the bottom it said easy really big and so from a distance it just looked like it said make things easy and that's really what that principle comes down to is make you know make sure the thing you wanted to do 
is the easiest option, but it de- definitely does not mean it's a license to be nasty to your horse or anything like that. It's just it's just about being smart about where you ask for things and things like that. You know, the next so the next principle I want to talk about is called the choose where you work and choose where you rest principle. And there is a um, there's an app you can get for your phone. I think it's called Equilab, and it will actually use a GPS to mark where your where you rode like if you're in an arena it'll show you all the tracks you made in that arena where you and it also delineates between differentiates between when you're walking when you're trotting when you're cantering and so you can look at this thing on your phone you can say okay i trotted a lot there and i walked a lot there and i cantered a lot there and all that sort of stuff we need those things to know what we did but horses don't horses are all just like i talked about in that last principle horses are always analyzing stuff you know and so and horses are energy savers. You know, when they, you know, you think about they're a grazing animal, they spend most of their time grazing and just casually moving along. The time when we really got the energy is for when the predators come. And so they tend to be energy conservers. I'm not saying they're lazy, but they tend to be energy conservers. And they're always very, very aware of where it is they get to do less work than more work. And so if you've ever heard that term arena sour horse, most horses or ring sour, most horses that are, you know, arena sour, they go in the arena and they work, 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 and then they get ridden over to the gate, the rider gets off and puts them away. And so basically, if if you looked at their Equilab app, the arena means work and only when you go out the gate do you get to rest. And so those horses tend to have a huge attraction to the gate. And so everything in the arena is lopsided. Going towards the gate, they're going too fast. Going away from the gate, they're going too slow. When you're going around, when the gate's on your right, they're leaning to the right. When the gate's on your left, they're leaning to the left. And so a lot of times, not being aware of this principle, people will be struggling to fix a lot of problems that actually could be solved by just being aware of this principle. And this is not like, oh, this is a Warwick Schiller thing. You know, he does that. Every horse is making a mental map all the time of, of the common denominators between where's the work, where's the rest, all that sort of stuff. And a lot of people aren't aware that horses really, really do that all the time. And all you need to do is you don't need to do any more than you're currently doing. You just need to balance it out a little bit. You know, like a lot of times, say at a horse expo, I'll, I'll have, you know, have a crowd of people and I say, has anybody here ever started a young horse under saddle? and ridden them outside of, say, the round pen for the first time. And a lot of people will put their hands up and I'll say, okay, can anybody tell me how those young horses travel outside the round pen for the first time? And everybody makes this like fish moving through water, this back and forth kind of a movement, this wiggly kind of movement with their hands. And I'd say, so what, you think they're all kind of wiggly wobbly? And everybody says, yes. And I say, well, why do you think they're wiggly wobbly? And then people start shouting out answers. Because they're unbalanced, because they're young, because they're not used to carrying a rider's weight, because they're not sure what you want them to do, because they're a warm blood, because it's a Wednesday, because the wind is blowing from the east, and like all these, all these things. But really, that is, that's not it. Because what we tend to do is we tend to get, like if you, if you were to take a, a, a a horse away from his friends, leading him in and lead him into a arena and turn him loose. He would hang out on that end of the arena by the gate, closest back to his, back to his friends. And what does he want to do with his friends? Does he want to 
canter endless circles around his friends or does he want to hang with his friends? He just wants to hang with his friends, doesn't he? So a lot of times what happens is you take a young horse in the arena and you, so the, the, their friends or the, their comfort spot is back on the outside of the arena and you hop on at the gate and you try to ride them in the exact other direction. And all that wiggly wobbly thing is just them wanting to turn around and come back. I once had a lady, um, I went to her place she was having trouble with her barrel racing horse. She goes, I bought this new barrel racing horse, but I can't get it to go, which is funny for a barrel racing horse. But anyway, I said, well, why don't you show me? And she hopped on and I could see exactly what the problem was, that this horse was just all it wanted to do was go out the gate. And she said, I just can't get it to go. And she showed me and she could not get this horse to, she could barely get it to pick up a trot, but that was it. And But it hit the trot and then come straight back to the walk. And I said, can you do something for me? Can you hop off? and lead her to the other end of the arena. And she looked at me very quizzically. And I said, just lead her to the other end of the arena. Now turn around down there. Now good. Now hop on. Now ask her to walk. And she asks the horse to walk, and it walks. Then it trots. Then it canters and canters all the way back to the gate and then stops. And I said, I thought you told me you couldn't get it to go. Most times people can't get their horse to go. They can't get their horse to go in the direction they want it to go in. And usually... Those horses have what I call destination addiction. And destination addiction is a thing I found on Facebook a few years ago. This meme said, beware of destination addiction. Destination addiction is the idea that you'll find happiness in your next house, in your next job, or with your next partner. Until you give up the idea that happiness is somewhere else, it will never be where you are. And horses, their happiness, <laughs> they're, they're where they want to be, has a lot to do with energy conservation. If there's a place they can, if you know, if there's a chance they can conserve some energy, they'll be directed towards that thing. When I filmed uh, this episode of the the principles of training, we had a young lady here who was an intern, and I I had a a horse that she was starting, and so we filmed her first ride outside in the arena. This mare's first ride outside in the arena, and I had two horses tied to the end of the arena, the fence, the end of the arena fence on the outside, on the same end as where the barn is and where the gate is to come in. And so I had Livia was the young lady's name. I had Livia come in and hop on, and I said, "I want you to try to get this horse to walk towards the other end of the arena in a straight line." And this horse did the whole wiggly wobbly thing, back and forth, back and forth, you know, like left, right, like a drunken sailor sort of thing. And I only did that to prove that this horse is not any different than any other horse, you know, because a lot of times people go, oh, my, my horse is worse than that. And so I said, okay, now, Livia, what I want you to do is hop off, lead it to the other end, turn around, face it this way, hop on and ask her to walk in a straight line on a loose rein. And so she takes that young horse on her first ride outside the round pen. She leads it to the other end, hops on and asks her to walk. And that mare picks up a perfectly straight walk on a loose rein walking directly back towards the two horses who were tied outside the fence. And she walked all the way down there. And when she, she walked perfectly straight. And when she got to that fence, I said to Livia, okay, pick up a trot. Don't steer her, just pick up a trot. And so Livia picked up a trot and this mare being, you know, she's, we'll get to this later in the, the principle of they need to know the answer before you ask the question and also create a tool before you use a tool. But the mare has been taught how to go quite well in the round pen. So you ask for a trot, you get a trot. So she asked at a trot and the mayor picked up a trot, but Livia didn't tell her where to go. And the mayor said, well, I want to be right here by my friends. And so the mayor trotted just a little circle around and around there for a while. And she tried to walk and Livia says, no, I want you to trot. 
And so the mayor trots around for a while, but then she goes, well, but this is trotting this small circle here is no fun. And her pen was outside the other corner of the arena. So she trotted across the end of the arena and trotted in circles around near her pen and she couldn't get any f- relaxation there. So she went back over to her friends. That didn't work. Back over the other side. Then she kind of went a little bit further down the arena away from that end, you know, 20, 30 feet. And I said to Olivia, just go ahead and bend to a stop there. So Olivia bends it to a stop and they sit and they relaxed. And she'd been trotting for probably, I don't know, two minutes. And so I usually, when I'm doing stuff like this, however long it takes them to find the answer, I will rest them for that long. So she trotted for two minutes, then we rested for two minutes. And I said, okay, Olivia, go ahead and ask her to walk again. The mayor walks directly straight back over to her friends. And when she gets there, Olivia picks up the trot. The mayor trots a few circles there, goes across the end of the other side, a few circles there, comes back to these horses, a few circles there, then starts to head down the arena a little bit. And I said, Olivia, bend it to a stop. And so that time she trotted about a minute. And so we rested her for a minute. And the next time I said, go ahead and ask her to walk again. She walked back to a friend. Olivia picked up the trot. The mayor trotted a bit of a circle there, a bit of a circle over on the other side, and then started heading even further down the arena. We bent it to a stop. And that was about 20 seconds of trotting. So we've now done 20, uh, two minutes of trotting, two minutes of sitting, one minute of trotting, one minute of sitting. So what's that? Two, four, six. And this was about 30 seconds of trotting and then 30 seconds of sitting. So this is about seven minutes in. And she's probably a third away, a third of the way down the arena by now. And then I said to Olivia, go ahead and ask her to walk and see where she walks to. And where did the mare walk? She walked very small circles where she was because she goes, oh, this is the place that I'm looking for. I thought it was over there by my friends or over there by my pen, but it's out here. And we just let her walk in circles. We didn't steer her. And this is, this is a, an example of making the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy. The wrong thing was walking that small circle there. We didn't do anything to her. We just kept her walking. And the mayor said, "The mayor said, well, it's it's much harder to walk circles than walk in straight lines. So I think I'm going to walk in a straight line. But I'm not going to walk in a straight line back towards my friends because that's even harder than what I was currently doing. I'm not going to walk towards my pen. That's harder. And she walked in a perfectly straight line to the other end of the arena. And we let her sit there a minute. And then I said, Olivia, okay, hop off. Lead her back down to where we started, the, like, less than 10 minutes ago where you first got on and I said, see if you can walk in a straight line to the other end of the arena. When, and she didn't the first time, did she? Livia leads her back down there, points her that way, hops on, and that mare walks in a perfectly straight line all the way to the other end of the arena. And the only thing we did on that ride was choose where we worked and choose where we allowed her to rest. And every time she took her mind off of, I think my friends are the Holy Grail and went somewhere else, we let her rest. And so she realized, oh, that rest that I'm looking for, I can find it out here. I don't have to find it over there. So it gets rid of destination addiction, remember? Destination addiction. The idea that you'll find happiness in your next job, in your next house, or with your next partner. Until you give up the idea that happiness is somewhere else, it will never be where you are. We got this mare to be happy where she was. She goes, I can find a rest here. I don't need my friends to have a rest. Does that make sense there? And that's, you know... And when I, when I talk about that a lot at, say, a horse expo, I'll say, does anybody here ever walk their horse when they ride them? And everybody puts their hands up. And I say, does anybody here ever trot their horse when they ride them? And they put their hand up. And I go, does anybody here ever stop their horse when they ride them? And everybody puts their hands up. And I go, that's the only three things we did with that mare on her first ride outside to completely change how she viewed that, that whole space of that arena. Instead of, I wish I was over there, she ended up where she was quite comfortable 
anywhere she was. And if you think about on a first ride, how much wearing out of your left rein and your right rein and your left leg and your right leg you use trying to get those horses to go straight, okay? I don't, I don't wear that stuff out because we're not using either the left rein or the right rein and left leg or the right leg. For me, initially, they've got to be able to just walk, trot and canter and carry me around and use the whole arena. And how I get them to use the whole arena is by choosing where I go up a gate, choosing where I go down a gate, or choosing where I ask for more energy, or choosing where I'm asked for less energy. And those horses have, they have just, you know, like computer memories about that stuff. They're really, really good at remembering that stuff. And they, pretty soon, you can, you can influence those horses to where it's their decision to use the whole arena and not even think outside the arena. And it really, it's a really, it's a mental exercise. A few years ago, I did a clinic in another country and there was a girl in the clinic who's a dressage rider. And the first day of the clinic, that's what we did. We did that exercise because her horse is very attracted to the gate. And the next morning I showed up to the clinic and the clinic was at the place where she keeps her horse. And so she'd got out there early that morning and ridden her horse in the arena that she normally rides the horse in. And when I showed up, she came up to me and she gave me a big hug. She goes, oh, thank you. You fixed everything. And I'm like, what do you mean I fixed everything? We only worked on the gate yesterday. We only worked on the choose where you work, choose where you rest principle. And she said, well, in my outside dressage arena, almost all the way down the other end on the right-hand side, there's a blue plastic barrel that's, that's got a hole cut in it and it sits over a, like a water meter or something or other. And every day I go in there and I get on my horse and I gather up the reins and get contact and I walk around the rail to the left. And when I get down that end of the arena... As she gets to that blue barrel, she spooks and runs all the way back down here. Like that barrel scares the heck out of her. And that's been every day for a year. And I'm like, okay, so what did I do? She says, well, this morning I got on in my dressage arena and instead of gathering up my reins and making a walk around the rail and walk down there, I just turned loose and said, where do you want to go? And she went to the gate. And so we did the whole thing that we did yesterday and she ended up going further and further and further down the arena on a loose rein without me steering her. And eventually she walked down that rail all the way down towards that blue barrel. And as I got closer to the blue barrel, I'm thinking, oh, my God, here comes the spook. Here comes the spook. Here comes the spook. And she got to the blue barrel and she slightly sidestepped around it but didn't spook at all. And she said, and right then I realized that that big old U-turn spook runoff thing that happens every day, it is 99% or 95% pull from the gate and 5% push from the plastic barrel. And when I took care of the pull from the gate, the plastic barrel didn't really bother her that much at all. And she said, I, you know, I've been working on that like it's a plastic barrel problem or really it's an actual, it's a gate problem. And so you just have to remember that your horse is an energy conserver and they do, they do remember everything about where they work and where they rest. So, you know, what we tend to do training horses is I have as much rest if in um, if I'm in an arena I spend as much time sitting still as I do working okay it's not just walk trot walk trot walk trot walk trot walk trot canter 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 more contact walk trot walk trot I do a lot of resting and I will always choose to rest them in the places of the arena they visit the least okay and I will always choose to do more work in the place of the arena that they're they've kind of attracted to and a couple of years ago I, and it's amazing what th- things this can fix. A couple of years ago, I had a Grand Prix dressage rider come for a couple of days. 
and she bought with her a young imported warm blood stallion she was having a few issues with and they were kind of behavioural issues. They weren't technical issues because she's not going to come to the cowboy for the technical dressage stuff, is she? And the first day when she was riding him around, she said he's also very uneven on the contact. She was walking a circle out kind of in the middle of the arena. She said he's kind of uneven on the contact. Like, like right now he's dropping his shoulder really bad. He's really leaning into my inside leg. And I said, okay, and how do you fix that? She goes, I just use more inside leg and inside rein. I said, well, keep doing that and tell me how it goes. And she was doing it. She goes, see, it feels better now. Right now it's, it's much better. I'm like, okay, good. And how does it feel now? She goes, well, now he feels like he's pushing into my outside rein. I'm like, okay, well, what do you do there? She goes, well, I use my outside leg and outside rein to fix that. And I said, well, tell me when it feels better. And, you know, after about five or ten, five seconds or so, six seconds, she goes, now it feels better. I'm like, okay, good. And does it still feel good? She goes, yeah, it still feels good. But, but hang on, now he's leaning into my inside rein and inside leg again. And this went on and on and on. And I, and I said, okay, so let me tell you what's happening here. He's not leaning into your inside leg or your outside range. She goes, well, yes, he is. I said, no, he's not. He's leaning towards the gate. And when you say he's leaning into your inside leg and inside rein, the gate is on your right. You're going in a circle to the right, the gate's on your right. And then as he comes around and he points towards the gate, he's no longer leaning on your inside leg. He straightens up because the gate, the thing that's attracted, that destination addiction thing is right in front of him. And then as you go around your circle and the gate's now on your left, now he's running his shoulder out. And then as he goes around and the gate's now behind him, it's not on the left or the right. You don't have that, that, that balance issue. And she went, oh, I never thought of it that way. So then I had to turn loose and said, where do you want to go? And he just turned and walked straight over to the gate and hung his head over the gate. I've got six foot high fences in my arena. And he was a big tall horse and he stuck his head up over the six foot high fence and just stood there. And so then we started from there and... We worked on basically the same exercise I just told you about with a young horse on its first ride outside. And we did that that day, got a bit of that started and then got the next day. And pretty soon he was going around the whole arena fence on a loose rein at a walk trot and a canter. And I said, okay, so now what I want you to do, I want you to come back over. Remember yesterday you said you had the crookedness issue? And she said, yes. And I said, come back over to this circle and walk around that circle you worked yesterday in the same place and tell me how it feels. And she walks around and she goes, oh, my God, he's never been this straight the whole time I've had him. And I said to her, yeah, his straightness is not a training issue. It's not what his body's doing. It's what his mind's doing. And his mind has been over at that gate wishing he could go outside the arena. Now... He doesn't have destination addiction. He's quite happy where he is. And so it doesn't matter where he is, he's not bulging and wishing he was somewhere else. So, you know, being aware of that, it's, I think it's the most simple thing you do because you always are going to be stopping, walking, trotting, cantering. And your horse is always going to be monitoring all those things. So you may as well just use it to your advantage. I mean, they're going to monitor that whether you do it or not. Um, so you just may as well use that to your advantage. And it's, it's so helpful for every horse and, um, you know, I mean, it's so prominent. There's a state line tack has a T-shirt you can buy from their catalogue. And on the front of it, it's got a compass and it says horse compass. And at the top, it says barn. And on the side, it says no barn. And at the bottom, it says no barn. On the other side, it says no barn. I mean, you know, this is so common knowledge that, you know, there's even a T-shirt about it. But you've got to, you know, you've just got to remember that that they're always monitoring that. And it's that's the that exercise there is the simplest exercise 
uh, that you can possibly, well, it's the simplest principle you can possibly do because it's happening whether you want to do it or not. You are walking, you are trotting, you are cantering, you are stopping, and your horse is monitoring all that whether you acknowledge it or not. So the, the sooner you understand that, the sooner you can use it to help make your idea your horse's idea. Which brings me to principle number five, which is the don- what I call the Donkey Kong principle. And the Donkey Kong principle is basically based on the video game Donkey Kong. I've never really played a lot of video games, but Donkey Kong is one I have played. And if you think about how a video game, and maybe I'll talk about the, the version of Donkey Kong I was playing, you start out, you're a little monkey. You pop out of a barrel and you've got to go along a path and then there's an alligator coming towards you and you've got to jump over the alligator. And if you mistime it and you don't jump over the alligator, you die. You go back to the start and then you come back along again and you come to this alligator and you jump him and then you keep going and you come to the second obstacle which is two alligators and you've got to be able to figure out do I jump and bounce in the middle of them or do I leap completely over them and you try it and if you get it wrong you die. But when you get it wrong you don't die and start where you are, you die and go back to the very beginning and start again which means you have to practice the first thing over again and then you do the first thing and then the second thing and if you die you go back and you got to practice the first thing and then by the time you get through the second thing you they may have made you practice the first thing four or five times and the first move in any video game is always the basics of everything you're ever going to learn in a video game. And then you go along, you know, you do the first thing, the second thing, you get to the third thing, you die, you go back and you have to do the first thing and the second thing again. Try to think about the Donkey Kong principle as the inner row principle, okay? You know, when you get to the 27th thing in, in your video game and you die... You don't go back and try it again. You go back to the beginning and you have to do the first thing, followed by the second thing, followed by the third thing, followed by the fourth thing, followed by the fifth thing. You've got to be able to do them in a row. It's like 100 push-ups. You can't, you can't do 100 push-ups without doing 99 push-ups before that. You know, The 100th push-up is only one push-up, but it's only 100 push-ups if it comes after 99 others. And so the, the thing about the Donkey Kong principle is when you have trouble with your horse – Go back to the very beginning. When you get stuck, don't go back a step. Go back to the very, very beginning, and especially in the beginning. Like if I'm working with a young horse and let's say the first day, let's say I'm trying to teach this horse the alphabet. You're obviously not teaching a horse the alphabet, but let's say the first thing I'm trying to teach is what we're going to call A. And it takes me an hour to teach the horse A the first day. And I don't mean it takes me an hour to get the horse to do A the first day. It takes me an hour to get the horse to where he goes, yes, I know what A is. They understand it. Then the second day I come out, I don't start on B. Just because they got A right yesterday doesn't mean they can get it right today. So you come out and you go, okay, do you remember the first letter? And they're like, ah, what is it? And you do a bit of work with it. And then 15 minutes later, yes, it's A. I know it. You go, good. Okay, let's work on the second letter. And it might take you 45 minutes to get to where they can go A, B. Okay. Then the next day you come out. You don't go, well, yesterday my horse knew A and B, so today I'm going to start with C. You would start with A, and it might take you 10 minutes to refresh A, and it might take you 20 minutes to refresh B, and then it take, might take you half an hour to teach them C. And at the end of the third day, they know A, B, and C, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, training horses, the upper, doing anything in life really, but the upper level stuff is just all the basics done really well. And what I, I think people... Where they make mistakes with horses is what they do is they come out the first day and they teach the horse something 
And then the second day they come out and they assume the horse still knows what happened the first day and then they go to the next thing. And so they don't really install the basics very well. But a video game, you until you get to the end of the first level, you can't save that whole first level. You've got to be able to go from the start all the way through those steps. And it really, um, you know, this is where your horse really learns stuff. You know, horses don't forget things that are taught well, but they will, they'll forget things if you don't go through them. And I'm not saying drill your horse on stuff. I mean, if you can, if they can go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you don't have to do that. But don't expect to know that they know that. And so, uh, you know, when at the start of anything, you're always, you always want to make sure you do the first thing and then can you do the first thing and the second thing and the third thing and, you know, because step number six on its own is useless unless you can do the first five things involved with that. And so I, I, you know, I probably don't have to go on too much about how the Donkey Kong principle fits in with Actually, you know what? I'll tell you a quick story about the Donkey Kong principle. Uh, I had a I had a, a an eventing horse come to a clinic in England a number of years ago, and this young lady, she's about sixteen, named Emily, and the horse's name was Archie. And Archie tends to be quite what I think they called strong, which mean basically means they can't stop him. <laughs> I mean, they can stop him, but it might take a while. But you know, there's yeah, he, he's really hard to, you know, he just goes all the time. And so I start, we started with, so my clinics at the time, I had a morning session, an afternoon session, and Emily was supposed to have two horses in the clinic, one in the morning session, one in the afternoon session, but she couldn't get the other horse on the trailer. So she was going to actually have Archie in both sessions, this two-day clinic. And so the first morning we did some groundwork. And what I found with Archie is I, once I got him to move on the ground, I couldn't get him to stop. Okay. He was hard to get to go, but once he got going, then you couldn't stop him. And so this sounds a bit like the, the don't go to bed angry principle is once he started, once he got up, he couldn't come down sort of thing. And so the first morning we did some groundwork. Second, uh, so that first afternoon he comes in and this, let's, let's start the Donkey Kong thing right here. Okay. First, uh, the second, the first afternoon she comes in under saddle and I said, can you get him to, how's his lateral flexion, which means you're just going to pick up on say your left rein and expect that horse to just soften his jaw and bend and follow that feel of the rein without moving his feet well Archie couldn't bend his head and when his head finally would bend then he couldn't stop his feet wouldn't stand still okay if he bent his head his feet started moving him there were times where he just walked in circles for five minutes before he actually came to a stop and so we spent all afternoon not just working on it the whole time but you'd work on it a bit and then you let him rest and you work on it a bit and let him rest but basically we spent all afternoon getting him to where you could bend his head to the left or the right without him moving his feet that's it so four hours of that and like i said we didn't do it for four hours but we spent we were, he was out there for four hours and that's all we worked on so the next morning she comes in under saddle and I said, okay, let's start at the beginning. How's your lateral flexion? And what we took at four hours to get to work yesterday, now it took us 15 minutes or so and then he was good at that. And we're like, okay, that's the first step. Now what we're going to do is start getting the disengage, which, which is teaching him how to respond to your leg aid. So you're going to bend his head to one side and then slide the leg on that side back and ask him to step over behind, untrack his hind feet. And... Once he untracks his hind feet, then we're going to take our leg off and then step one has to come back into play. He has to be able to come to a stop with his head bent around there. Well, that 
once we got him untracked, like we got him to move off our leg, then he wouldn't stop again. And then we had to get back to, to step one. And so that's the second morning of the clinic. And so we did that all the way to lunchtime. So basically the eight hours, the four hours on after, the Saturday afternoon and the four hours on Sunday morning, we haven't even walked forward yet. We've got him to bend his head without moving his feet. Then we've got him to untrack his feet. And then he's got to come to a stop with his head bent. So it's basically the don't go to bed angry principle because once we got him using any energy at all, he couldn't let go of that energy. And so eight hours just doing that. Then we come back out and like I said before, don't send me hate mail and say, oh, you can't do that for eight hours. It wasn't eight hours of just doing that. There were times of doing nothing, but we weren't doing anything else. Okay. There's a lot of time spent just sitting on him, but those were the only things we were working on when we were working on stuff. So she comes back after lunch and I said, okay, how's your lateral flexion? That's good. Yes, very good. How's your disengage? That's good. So we've just gone through the first eight hours of training in the first five minutes on, our, on this afternoon session. I said, okay, let's go ahead and ask him to walk on a completely loose rein. And she goes, well, Archie doesn't really walk on a loose rein. I said, let's go ahead and ask him to walk. So she asked him to walk on a loose rein and he goes, walk, 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 trot, 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 and kind of takes off and I said go ahead and bend him around to a stop which is going back to our step one wasn't it so she bent him around there then we waited for him to relax again then go ahead and ask him to walk and I think he made uh, we had to make five corrections at the walk which means while he was walking he lost the walk and took off into a trot and we had to bend him around to a stop and start again five corrections at the walk and then he can walk around on a loose rein and Archie's 15 years old and never walks on a loose rein so now he can walk on a loose rein and it took maybe half an hour to do that. Okay. So then I said, okay, now we're going to pick up a trot on a loose rein. She goes, well, Archie doesn't really trot on a loose rein. I said, we're going to try it. So she picks up a trot and he goes, trot, 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 rolls off into the canter. We bend him around and bring him back to that relaxed state again. We're doing the whole don't go to bed angry principle here. Wait for him to relax and then go again. And he made, we had to make three corrections at the trot. Okay. So we, we spent eight hours at the standstill, half an hour at the walk, and we made five corrections, and then 20 minutes at the trot made three corrections. And then I said, okay, now it's time to ask him to canter on a loose range. He goes, well, Archie doesn't really canter on a loose range. I said, go ahead and ask him to canter. She asked Archie to canter, and instead of having that rushy, rushy tr- canter he's always had, he goes, ba-dump, 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 like real rhythmic and cadence and relaxed. How many times, and he didn't run off or get fast or anything, so we made no corrections at the canter, okay? And then I said, just go ahead and bend him to a stop, let him sit for a bit. And we did that, you know, a number of times, not because we had to, but just going through that process. And then after a while, he looked relaxed enough on a loose rein at a canter where I thought Emily could stop him off her seat. So she's canting around. I said, Emily, just go ahead and sit and breathe out. And she sits and he goes, canter, canter, trot, 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 walk, 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 stop. So now, the first time I've ever tried it, he can now come to a stop from a canter off your seat on a loose rein. Then I said, and he did, she did that a few times. And so then I went over to her and I said, Emily, let me have a look at your reins. I think there's something wrong with them. And I got the reins and then I pulled the bridle off him. So now she's riding this very forward venting horse in this clinic with no bridle on. And I said, go ahead and ask him to walk. And she goes and asks him to walk. He walks around, relaxing his head down. I said, go ahead and ask him to trot. She asks him to trot. He picks up the trot, trots around, no bridle on, doesn't run off. 
So you go ahead and ask him to pick up the canter. He picks up the canter. Ba-dump, 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 ba-dump. Canter's around, nice and relaxed. I so say, go ahead and sit right there, Emily. And Emily sits and he goes, canter, canter, trot, 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 trot. Walk, 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 walk. Stop. Okay. First time ever. And you'd think for an eventer that you can't stop, that would be impossible. But that's not where all the hard work occurs. The hard work occurs in the very, very beginning. And the thing about those basics are they're, they're very easy to do where you think they're okay, but they're not perfect. And in order for the big things to be, the big hard things to be easy, the basics have to be perfect. And I'm sure, you know, getting back to video games, I'm sure you've seen your, your kid playing a video game and you're watching them and they're like, they're like a ninja. And you go, how long have you been on this level? And they go, oh, we just got here. And you're thinking, how can you be that good at this level when you've never been on this level before? But all video games are set up to where they do not let you get further ahead until you learn the basics over and over and over and over and over. And in one of my podcasts, which was about books, I talked about a book called The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. And he talks a lot about this type of of creating these foundations in in there but that's yeah that so the whole donkey kong principle is really about when you get in trouble go backwards but don't necessarily even before you're in trouble don't necessarily assure assume your horse knows something start at the start and go through all your steps and that's really how you really create really well-trained horses that don't forget what they've learned from here on out, the horses, the horses, the, the principles tend to maybe overlap a little bit, but the next principle is called, they need to know the answer before you ask the question. And I really like to quote my friend Elsa Sinclair. If you've never heard of Elsa, she was on one of the podcasts and does some amazing work with horses. But I love her quote. She says, good leaders only ask yes questions. And so this whole, they need to know the answer before you ask the question <coughs> is about you know, it's about only asking, only asking yes answers. When you only ask yes answers with your horse, it really builds a great deal of trust. But, you know, so the whole, you know, this relates back to the Donkey Kong principle, like we didn't ask this horse to slow down off our seat with no bridle on until he could slow down off our seat with our bridle on. We didn't ask him to canter on a loose rein until he could trot on a loose rein. And it has nothing to do with canter or trot. It just has to do with the amount of it energy they bring to something and what that horse couldn't do in the beginning was once he had energy he couldn't let go of energy and it's just like you know it's just like robin and the panic attack on the plane it's the same it's all this stuff's the same thing that comes back to the that comes back to the um you know the don't go to bed angry principle but you know some people might think well how would you how do you train a horse who doesn't know anything if you only ask them questions to things they do know already well, that's where you've got to understand the nature of horses. You know, you've got to understand what do they what do they know how to do already without being taught to them. And a few years ago for my uh, Christmas video, I had my horse Bundy, the, the, the Christmas video was he's sitting on a, we're in the arena and he's sitting on a couch in the arena and he gets up off the couch, walks over to an ice chest or what Australians would call an esky, and in New Zealand you would call a chili bin. He goes over this ice chest, knocks the lid off it, picks a beer up in his teeth and hands it to me, and I go, and he's got a Santa hat on. And I go, thanks, Santa. Uh, that's exactly what I wanted for Christmas. 
I uh, hope you had a great year and uh, I hope Santa brings you what you want for Christmas or something like that. But a friend of mine named Katie Negranti, she was the one that taught him all those tricks. So, you know, when I'd go off gallivanting around the world doing clinics, sometimes I'd have, I'd send Bundy down to Katie to, um, to, to keep riding him and doing things with him while I was gone. And, and Katie got into the clicker training and so she decided she was going to do all this stuff with, with Bundy with the clicker training. And Bundy... When he was a young horse, when he was two, he kicked a he was turned loose in a round pen and running around. And he kicked a fence and he fractured his P two, and so we had to do surgery on that. They put a plate and a screw in his P two and they fused his P one and P two, and you know that's in the, that's his pastern and his foot there, and he wore a cast and had to be in a stall for four months. He couldn't even be hand walked at, at this point in time. And Bundy's a very um, busy-minded horse and he actually learnt to crib while he's in there and he still does it to this day. But one of the things Bundy would do in that stall is sit up like a dog. So his front legs would be – he was sitting on his backside, his front legs would be straight and he'd have his cast leg, which is left leg, kind of sticking out to the side so it wasn't underneath him. He'd kind of sit there and rest it like that. And, uh, you know, when he was a yearling, I taught him how to lay down and the first time he got up from laying – when I taught him how to lay down, he got up, he sat up like a dog and just stayed there. And then – got up so sitting something he can he can do already um if you have him tied up to a fence and there's a bucket along the fence or something like that he will turn around and back up to it and start half climbing up on it with his leg okay and so what uh what katie did was she captured those two two things he tends to sit and he also tends to climb up and things like that so she taught him to clicker training she taught him to back up away from her but she put him in front of some hay bales, so he backed up away from him. And then when he started putting his foot up on that hay bale, she rewarded that and clicked that. And then pretty soon she reclicked a bit more, and pretty soon he's sitting on the hay bale. And so that bit was pretty easy to teach. But if you think about with the um, the beer thing, first she she taught him to, to touch a target. And that's usually one of the first things you do in clicker training is teach a horse to touch a target. And when you do that, you are relying on your horse's natural curiosity about things and so you hold a target so it might be like a, a tennis ball on a stick and you hold it out in front of their nose and most horses will just go over and put their nose on it and sniff it like that and what you do is you click and you treat when they touch the target they already know how to do that they already have that inbuilt curiosity okay so they need they they know the answer to the question before you ask it and all katie did was she transferred it from the the from the the target so then she'd put a plastic bottle on the ground and put the target next to the plastic bottle and click. And then after a while, she'd just put the plastic bottle on the ground and he would sniff the plastic bottle and she'd click. And then after a while, she wouldn't click. And then he'd kind of nudge it with his nose and then she would click. And then eventually his teeth and eventually she transferred it to a, into a beer bottle. But that whole trick there all came from things he already knew how to do. She just captured them. And so it's... You know, it's the same thing working with young horses or whatever. You you start out with what they can already do. Then, and this is understanding the nature of horses, and then you work from there. But the big thing is working with horses is you only want to ask, like Elsa says, you only want to ask them yes questions. And it's kind of like marriage proposals. No man buys a ring, gets down on one knee in front of a woman, and proposes if he thinks she's probably going to say no. And what happens if a man does propose too early? kind of gives the woman a bit of a, 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 you know, the idea like this guy's a bit needy. Like, I mean, that's, that's a great question to ask, but it's not really the time yet. You know what I mean? And so that would, 
you know, that would put a bit of a damper on that relationship. That would make her think this guy doesn't read social situations really well. And it's the same thing with horses. If you, you know, if you're asking your horse to do things that they can't do, you're just telling them, hey, I don't, I don't read you very well. I'm not, you know, and even if it's not that you're not reading very well, but that's, that's what it comes across. And really gaining your horse's trust really comes from only asking yes questions and, 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 they need to know the answer before you ask the question. People probably think, well, how do you develop your horse further ahead if you don't ask them things they don't know how to do? Well, the thing is they either they either know how to do it or they know how to do the step before it so well that it's just it's going to be easy for them to figure out. And just like, you know, um, how easy was it to bend Archie to a stop from a canter, easy because we'd done it from a trot and we'd done it from a walk and we'd actually done it from a standstill in that disengaging, you know, sequence there. So, yeah, the, the whole they need to know the answer before you ask the question is not only a very, very good way to train horses, but it's also a very, very good way to get your horse to trust your judgment. So the next principle I want to talk about is the change one thing at a time principle. And the thing about the change one thing at a time principle is it not only is it a really good way to train horse, a problem-free way to train horses, it's also very good at um, identifying the source of any problem. And a, a friend of mine who trains horses here in California a few years ago, he um, we're at a horse show. It was hot. It was at the end of the day, and he was walking past our barn, and uh, I said, "Hey, you want a beer?" And he goes, "No, I." I I've given up beer recently. I'm like, why is that? And he said, oh, I went and had a, I was having some stomach issues and I went and had a test done and they said I'm allergic to yeast. So I've cut out everything with yeast. And so for the next five years in the summertime, we'd be at a horseshoe, all us trainers would be sitting around having a beer and he's sitting around sipping on water because he can't drink beer. And then one day I saw him drinking a beer at a horseshoe and I said, what, what happened to the, the yeast thing? He goes, well, what I did was I cut out all yeast and what I've realized is it's not the yeast in beer that affects me. So what he didn't do, he didn't change one thing at a time. He didn't go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eliminate this source of yeast and see what that does. And when there's no change, he's going to eliminate this source of yeast. He eliminated every source of yeast. And okay, yes, he is better. But he doesn't know if it was one or every type of yeast that was the problem. So this guy missed out on drinking a cold beer on a hot afternoon for five years because he didn't change one thing at a time. He changed everything at once. And, you know, a question that I get a lot from people is, I took my horse to his horse first horse show and he was a complete idiot. What do you do for that? And if you think about when you go, if you've been riding around at home alone and you go to your first competition, you take your horse away to his first competition You've changed a lot of things at once. One thing is you've changed the location, okay? You've changed the number of horses in a location because at home there's probably no horses, other horses riding around. And you go to the show and there's hundreds of horses there. And then you've also changed the atmosphere. There's loudspeakers and there's children and there's balloons and there's banners and there's all sorts of stuff. And then the other thing that you've changed too is your internal energy, you're probably, it's show day, you're nervous, you're going to compete, and all that's different. And all those changes are too much for most horses. And so I recommend breaking things down into pieces, okay? First thing, 
change the location and nothing else. So it doesn't have to, you know, don't go somewhere where there's a lot of activity. Go to a friend's house or whatever. Just change the location and then do your Donkey Kong principle. Go back to the start. Do your work with the horse you have today principle. If you get your horse off the trailer and he's a nervous wreck and acts like he's never been ridden before, don't get on and ride him. Do whatever you did when you first got him before he'd been ridden. You know, just go through the process again. It's, uh, this is the Donkey Kong principle. Start at the start. So you can see all these principles are starting to stack up. If he gets off the trail and he's nervous, you've got the don't go to bed angry principle. You've got to do that one. And so get and don't go to your friend's house and ride him around until he's good and then think, okay, he's good now. So next time I'm going to take him somewhere else with more stuff than this. Because if it takes you, you take him to your friend's house and it takes him an hour to get to back to what he's like at home. That means it takes him an hour to get back to his like it is at home. You need to get to where you take him to your friend's house and he gets off the trailer and he is like he is at home. Then you could change one more thing. You might, you know, you might take him somewhere and have that has a bit of atmosphere. Maybe you go to a, a friend's house and she's riding her horse at the same time as you. I mean, you, you can break this down as much as you want, but the you know, change one thing at a time principle real, and most of these principles really, what they do is they make your training problem free. You're not solving problems, you're preventing problems, uh, if that makes sense. And I mean, there's a million things, like, you know, when I saddle a young horse for the first time, there's a lot of steps that I've done. I have got them good with the saddle pad. I've got them good with the saddle without the saddle pad. I've got them good with pressure around their girth area without the saddle or the saddle pad, okay? I have actually sat on them from off the fence. So I've been above them, okay? And I have been on both sides of them. I've had my left leg on the fence and my right leg hanging over them. So all these things have all been taken care of separately from each other. And the first time you put the saddle on and do it up they've had the saddle on before they've had the saddle pad on before they've had pressure around their girth before they've had something on both sides of them before and usually you know usually that makes the process a whole lot easier but it's it's just yeah I I really cannot say enough about the change one thing at a time principle that's it's probably the secret to anything and if, if every time I see somebody you know a horseman who can do some crazy elaborate thing with a horse I'll always say so so how do you do that what's the process and when they tell you the process they're telling you the change one thing at a time they're telling you the donkey Kong principle they're telling you the don't go to bed angry principle they're telling you the work with the horse you have today principle in the in the in the the, the process they tell me how they train the horse to do that big amazing thing you know, all of those principles come into that. So this one, you know, change one thing at a time. It's it's so important. You Because cha- the other thing is if you change more than one thing at a time, you could put them over their threshold. But the other thing is if it does go wrong, you don't know which one of those – this is like my beer drinking friend. This is You don't know which one of those things caused the problem. Whereas if you change one thing at a time, you can tell which one's the problem. And so I, I probably don't need to tell you any more examples of that. You know, all these these principles, um, I've, all the, the TV show, all three seasons of it, they are available on my YouTube channel. So there's, there's a lot of stuff on there. But I just thought, you know, people like to hear this stuff on a podcast, so I thought I'd talk about it. But you can see actual, you know, 
video examples of these on my YouTube channel. The next principle I want to talk about is called the do the opposite principle. And, you know, this, if, you, if you're a dressage rider and you think about, you know, all the transitions that you do to teach a horse how to have self-carriage and collection, these are all about the do the opposite principle. You know, if you think about the, the, the first transitions you start doing might be walk to halt transitions and then halt to walk transition or maybe walk to trot transitions, trot to walk transitions. Let's say we're going to do walk to trot transitions. Um, you know, they are all about do the opposite. So if you are walking and you are going to go to a trot, so walking is kind of a low energy sort of a gait. If you're going to go to a trot and you went from a walk to the world's slowest Western pleasure jog, 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 and then back to a walk and then back to jog, 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 jog. You would not create any self-carriage or collection because you are not actually changing. You're not doing the opposite. You're not going from energy, upward energy to downward energy to upward energy to downward energy. You're just... You've just got no energy. And it's the same thing if you had a, you know, a horse that walked really, really fast and kind of running through your hands and you went to a trot and they're running through your hands and you bring them back to a walk and they're still leaning forward and running through your hands. There's no sit to that part. And so do the opposite is, is all about, it's all about whatever state your horse is in, whether it's physical or mental, um, do the opposite of that. You know, I, I like to quote Carl Hester. So if you're a dressage rider, you know who Carl Hester is. Carl Hester says, a hot horse needs to be learned to be ridden with the leg on and a dull horse needs to learn to be ridden with the leg off. And so what, you know, the, whatever your horse's tendency is, you have to kind of do the opposite of that. You know, we talk, Carl Hester talks about um, his horse, Nip Tuck, that he was competing when um, Charlotte Dujardin was competing Vallegro. And he, he talked about designing uh, the the freestyles for each horse, and he said for Vallegro, he's a he's a big mover, and he he um, you know he's got a lot of energy, and he says so he's got to come in at a working trot because if you come busting in there at an extended trot and he's up, you're not going to get him back down again. Whereas he said Nip Tuck is like a quiet sort of a horse, and I've got to come in at an extended trot and have him kind of revved up, otherwise I'll lose lose him you know energetically during the whole performance and you know like he said i never trot vallegro big and i always work on trotting nip tuck big you know you might think oh vallegro's this big mover you'd want to ride that around all day long but you don't work on the thing that needs working on you need you work on the thing that doesn't need working on and so that's basically the do the opposite principle and you can you can um use that Oh, for, for, for so many things like mental adjustments for longitudinal adjustments. So front to back, um, self-carriage, left to right adjustments, you know, like, like straightness, like if they're leaning to the left. They, and I'll tell you a good example of this. I had a lady at a clinic in Australia a few years ago, had a, I forget what breed of horse she had, but she competed in dressage on this horse and it's not a horse that's usually competed in dressage. So it wasn't a it wasn't a, a warm blood or a thoroughbred. I forget what it was. And I said to her, so what's your what's your biggest problem that you have with this horse? And she said, I would say on the right lead, going around corners on the right lead, he really drops his shoulder to the right. 
and I, I can't use it. Like he doesn't get off my inside leg and my inside brain enough for me to fix that because I try as much as I can and I can't do it. So I said, okay, let's see it. Canter down the long side here and let me see you go around this corner on the end. So she canters down the long side and as she approaches the corner, this horse starts to drop his shoulder and kind of motorbikes around the corner. So dropping his shoulder means his weight's not squarely over his front legs. It's way balanced over to the inside. You know, he's going around the corner like he's riding a motorbike. And I said, okay, I see your problem. So I said, I'm going to have you do that again. And halfway through that corner, I'm going to ask you to do something different. And she said, okay. So she canters down the fence. And as he starts around the corner and he's dropping his shoulder, I said, turn left into the fence. And she asked him to turn left about where the corner was. And he, it took him till halfway across the arena before he could adjust himself well enough to turn left because he was only committed to going right. And finally, he turned left about halfway across the arena. And she went back around and I said, okay, now let's set that up and do it again. So she canters down the long side in the right lead and as he approaches the corner and he starts around the corner, I said, turn left. And she asks him to turn left and he still struggles to turn left but manages to turn left probably before the middle. And we do it again and now he turns left a quarter of the way across the arena and then an eighth of the way across the arena. And then the last time she comes down, he goes around, as he goes around the corner, I said, now turn left. And he just turns left into the corner and goes back up the other way. And I said, okay, what I want you to do now is come down the fence there and go around that corner. But when you get in the corner, use your inside leg to push him up into the corner. And she kind of looked at me like, but I've already shown you my inside leg does not work. Neither does my inside rein. But anyway, she's a good sport. She canters down that long side and comes up to the corner and she puts her inside leg and her inside rein on and he pushes way up into the corner and gets off her inside rein and inside leg and goes around the corner. And... What was going on here was, as he approached the corner, every time he's ever come to a corner on a right lead, they've gone around the corner to the right. And so he said, oh, I know what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to go to the right. He was only prepared to go right. And when she said turn left that first time, he's like, hang on, I can't turn left. Hang on, let me adjust myself. I'm cantering and I'm trying to turn left and I can't. Hang on, hang on. Uh, uh. Now I can do it. And he managed, to, he managed to turn left. But, you know, so by the end of that, he was holding himself up in the middle. So instead of her stopping him from dropping to the right, she did the opposite. When he leant to the right, she went to the left. And it's funny, I mentioned Carl Hester a minute ago. Carl Hester does something similar with horses. So I've read or heard is when he approaches a corner on a horse that has a shoulder dropping problem, he doesn't hold them up. He, as he approaches the corner, he throws the reins at him. And as they go to lean and drop their shoulder around the corner, he does a halt and he does a turn on the forehand to the outside, then canters down that long side to the next corner, throws the reins at him, and as they go to fall around the corner, he does a halt, turn on the forehand to the outside. And after a while, that horse approaches the corner, and he's like, I have no idea if I'm going to go around to the right or stop and do a turn on the forehand and go back the other way, so I better adjust myself and get ready in the middle here. Okay? And so that, you know, that's just doing the opposite, but that also falls under the mic, the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy, okay? And you're probably wondering, how does that fall under that thing? Well, we asked the horse to do something, to turn left, and him carrying his body in the wrong position made it hard for him. He said, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, this is hard for me, I'm, I'm not in a good position, and we repeated over and over and over, and after a while that horse started to carry himself in a much better position to be able to turn left, so he made that turn. He made le turn left easy on himself, but that fixed our our problem right there. So yeah, do the opposite. Most of the 
you know, it's, it's kind of like this comes back to the don't go to bed angry principle. On a day when Robin was completely relaxed, she would sit down and get herself a little bit uptight. So she would do the opposite. And then when she got a little bit uptight, she would then do the opposite of that and get herself relaxed. And it's that, it's that transition, you know, do the opposite is really about transitions from one state to another, whether it's from leaning to the left, from going to the right or going to the left or going too fast or too slow, you know, the in, out, the up, the down, all of that stuff is you're always working on the opposite of whatever your horse is, whatever your horse is doing. And eventually they get in the middle, but you don't hold them in the middle of anything. You allow them to tell you what they want to do one way and then you do the opposite of that. And eventually they find that spot there in the middle. And there is a, um, there's an exercise I'll do at clinics to show this. If someone is sitting in a chair watching and think about this, let's say they're sitting and they're sitting on one hip, okay, and they're leaning on one side of their chair. So they're slouched over to one side, their legs are crossed and they're sitting on one hip. And I will say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do a series of exercises for me, can you? And they're like, okay. I say, can you stand up? And so they uncross their legs, they straighten themselves up, and then they stand up. And then I say, can you sit back down? And they sit down. And as they sit down, then they go to slouch off to one side. And as they do, I go, can you stand up? And they stand up. And then I say, now can you sit down? And as they sit down, they go to slouch off to one side. And then I say, stand up. And I do that, you know seven or eight, nine, ten times or whatever, and after a while when they sit down, they sit down and they engage their core. Their back is straight, their shoulders, you know, their, their weight is, is equally distributed on either butt cheek, their feet are flat on the floor and grounded and their hands are on their thighs. Perfectly straight up and down. You could draw a line down the middle of them and they'd be perfectly the same on both sides. And at no point in time did I say, I want you to engage your core. I want you to sit up, sit up straight. Pardon me. I want you to put your feet on the floor. I want you to put your hands on your thighs. I didn't do any of that. I just asked them to do a series of exercises. Had them do the opposite of what I'm doing. When they went to sit down, I had them stand up. When they stood up, I had them sit down. And after a while, they met me in the middle. And that's really what self-carriage is. That's what self-carriage and collection is, is, is that, that getting ready in the middle. And how do you do that is by doing the opposite of whatever they're doing. If they're not energetic, you get more energy. If they're too energetic, you bring that energy back down. And you just play with that back and forth. And, and you know, that's how you get them. That's how you get them in the middle. So the, the next uh, principle I want to talk about is called the anticipation is your best friend or your worst enemy. And like I said, once these, once you get this far into the principles, they all start to overlap each other. But, the, you know, I often at horse expos and stuff, I say to people, so has anybody got a horse that anticipates and someone raises their hand and rolls their eyes like, yeah, my horse anticipates. I'm like, well, that's great. And they look at me like I'm an idiot. <laughs> but horses, um, how we train them to do things is anticipation. If you think about that, horse that was, I just talked about, that was going around the corner, dropping its shoulder really badly to the right. It was anticipating going to the right. And that's why it was doing the wrong thing. What we got the horse to do was anticipate it may have to turn to the left or it may turn to the right. And then he stood himself up and he was right there in the middle. And so anticipation is your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on how you look at it. And, you know, a friend of mine, uh, was a professional bull rider and, uh, I think I've said one of the podcasts before, my dad was a bull rider and I was, you know, I was a bit of an armchair quarterback with the bull rider and he used to watch it a lot. And there was a guy one time that said, he talked about Freddie Fear. He said, Freddie Fear is your 
your best friend, your worst enemy, depending on how you use it. So when you do a, you know, a death-defying type sport like bull riding, you've got to have a little bit of fear to stop you from doing stupid stuff, but you can't have so much fear it stops you from doing your job. And that's kind of where I got that saying from where he said, you know, fear is your best friend, your worst enemy, depending on how you use it. And anticipation's the same. Horses will anticipate things that are done repetitively the same way, which is why when we are training horses to do things, we will do it the same way, unless, of course, you're trying to break up anticipation. And so how you, how you, how you break up anticipation is you do it differently every time, and how you create anticipation is you do it the same every time. And if you think about, like I said, the horse that dropped its shoulder going around the corner really badly, every time I approach a corner, we go around the corner. So instead, when they see the corner coming, instead of them going, there may be something else I'm going to do right here, so I'm going to get ready for it. They just got ready for the right turn. And so you just have to remember, this is like the whole choose where you work, choose where you rest. And like I, in that, I said, your horse is always mapping out where they work and where they rest. Whether you want to use that or not, they're using it. And it's the same thing with anticipation. Horses are always anticipating stuff. So you just got to choose how you want to use anticipation uh, to help you. You know, before with that, that whole choose where you work, choose where you rest principle, I meant to tell you this story before about it. But think about in a dressage, if you're a dressage rider, in a dressage test, when you ride across the diagonal, you've got to ride your horse up into the corner. And a lot of people have trouble getting their horse to go up into the corner because it's about the sharpest turn you're going to make. It's, you know, it's more than a 40 it's smaller than a 45 degree turn because you're not you know it's not a square it's an oblong so you're coming at that at a sharp angle right there and you know a lot of people struggle with that but i talked about carl hester before well an exercise i heard that charlotte dujardin does to get a horse to ride up into the corner is she when she rides across the diagonal she will ride them up into the corner nose into the corner and stop and rest there and stand there and let them rest and so that's the choose where you work, choose where you rest principle. And after a while, they suck her up into the corner. But you can't do it once and have it work. You've got to do it a lot of times. So this is where anticipation comes in. You've got to get that horse to anticipate, hey, there's quite a possibility I'm going to get it. If I can get way up into that corner, I'm going to get a rest. And so you you start to, to build that there. But, yeah, you know, anticipation is is – most people view it as a bad thing, but everything good they learn is through anticipation. Everything bad they learn is through anticipation. And so, like I said before, the key is if your horse anticipates things that you don't want it to anticipate, you're obviously doing things the same way every time. What you've got to do is mix that up. And if your horse is not responding to things the way they should, you're probably not doing them the same enough. And we'll get probably probably get into that a bit more in the next um the next principle, which is called the application of your aids. So the application of your aids is, it doesn't matter what aids you are going to use, but how you apply them, if you apply them consistently, you'll get anticipation, which means they'll start to respond to the subtler aid. But the, the rules for the anticipation of your aids are you don't put them all on at once, you put them on one at a time. Let's say you're a dressage rider and you're going to ask your horse to go forward you're probably going to use your seat first and then if they don't go, you're going to leave your seat there and then add your legs. So now your seat and your leg are on 
And if they don't go, then you've got your seat and your leg on and then you tap them with the whip and when they go, you release all three. Okay, that's basically how you, the application of your aids is you do the smallest thing first, then the next thing while still doing the first thing and then the next thing while still doing the first two things and you just layer them. But what happens after a while is they start to associate that first aid with the response that they give and after a while, you know, your horse can respond to your seed aid or whatever aid it might be. But you've got to be, in order to do this, you have to really honour that work with your horse to have today principle. So, you know, just because last time you're riding a green horse and let's say you're working on your seat, leg, whip, seat, leg, whip, seat, and you get to the end of today and you use your seat and they go, you don't come back tomorrow and go, I'm just going to use my seat and then put your seat on and then when they don't go, stop and look down and go, what, what's going on here? You've got to be prepared to do that stuff every time. So you've got to be in the moment. So every time, if you're, going to, if you're a seat leg whip aid person, every time you use your seat aid, you have to be prepared to go to your leg aid Followed by your whip out. You're never just dawdling along. I'm going to use my seat aid and, oh, did it work or, or did it not work? You know what I mean? You've really got to be present. So you can see all these these aids are starting to, to add up. But the application of your aids, it's really important. If You know, I said a minute ago about anticipation. A lot of times people, horses anticipate things they don't want them to do because they do things exactly the same way every time without realising it. And then the things they do want them to do they will do them differently without realising it. You know, they'll add leg and then they'll use their seat then they'll tap with the whip or they'll tap with the whip and then they'll use their leg or they will add leg, not get a response, then release their leg and just things like that. But the, the key to having your horse respond really well to your aids is to apply them in the same order every time and be prepared to go all the way through the steps every time if you have to. Now, you probably won't have to if you can be really consistent, but... You know, just because it's been working good for two weeks, it doesn't mean you throw that out and say, oh, I'm never going to have to think about going through all the steps again. You all, you've got to remain present and really make sure you do go through all those, all those steps every single time. So the next principle I want to talk about is called create a tool before you use a tool. And we've almost discussed this one already, but the, the big thing with this is before you use something to solve an issue or teach something else. You've got to make sure the things you are you are using already work. Uh, and the analogy I like to use for this is: let's say you um, you know your washing machine had a leak out the back of it, and you had a look at the back of your washing machine, and you realise that there's a there's a hose clamp holding the cold water hose onto the back of your washing machine, and it needs a flathead screwdriver to to tighten it up so it doesn't leak. So you go and get your flathead screwdriver. So now you've got your tool to fix your problem. But what you don't realize is flathead screwdriver is old and it's perished to where the handle will spin around on the shaft like it's it's worn away in there. And so you put the screwdriver on your, on your hose clamp and you try to do it up and the handle spins but the shaft doesn't spin. So now you've got a tool that doesn't quite work to fix your problem and because the tool doesn't work, it won't fix your problem. So now you've got to go, what am I going to do here? So I need to find some sort of adhesive and pull this handle off and glue it on to the shaft. So you go and you find your adhesive, you know, like in Australia, we have one that's called Aroldite. Let's call it Aroldite. 
you go get your aerodite. So now you've got your tool to fix your tool to fix your problem. And so then you go to take the lid off the, the glue and you realize that, oh, I got some glue on the threads last time and I've kind of almost glued the lid on. So now I can't get the lid off. So now you've got a tool to fix your tool to fix your problem, but your tool doesn't work. So you can't fix the other tool and you can't fix your problem. So then you've got to go, what do I need now? I need some pliers to get the lid off the glue. So you get your pliers out and then you realized, oh, I was using them to fix the water trough the other day and they got water on the pliers and then they rusted shut and I can't get the pliers to open and shut. So now you've got a tool that doesn't work to fix your tool that doesn't work to fix your tool that doesn't work to fix your problem and you still got the problem. But then you go, okay, I need some WD-40 and you get your WD-40 out and it works. So you spray your WD-40 on the pliers, get the pliers opening. Now you put the pliers on the lid of the glue unscrew the lid of the glue, put the glue on the handle of the screwdriver, put it on, wait for eight hours or however long it's till it sets, and then you fix your washing machine. And horse training is very much like that. In the beginning, when you're laying your foundation of your training, you're basically assembling your toolbox. And I think, you know, if people watching from the outside watching a really good horse trainer train a horse to do a specific, you know, like they're going to be this in the end, whatever this thing may be. In the beginning, it doesn't look anything like what the end's going to be, but really what you are doing is you are assembling your toolbox. You are, you're creating all your tools that you're going to need so that when the time comes, you've got them. What you, what I tend to do training horses is I basically create all the tools before I start teaching them too much stuff. And then when you need a tool to fix an issue that pops up, you don't have to go back and recreate that tool. You have that tool there already. And so that's, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's very similar to the, um, you know, the principle of they need to know the answer before you ask the question, all that sort of thing. But a lot of times I see people trying to solve an issue with a tool. Let's, let's, you know, an aid, let's say an aid, like their leg aid or their seat aid or their rain aid or whatever. They're trying to fix a problem that involves the seat aid and the leg aid and the rain aid working well. They don't work well and they're trying to use those those three tools that don't work really well to solve a problem. And, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, but two rights make an aeroplane. So, you know, that it's very important that you and this is what you learn as you train horses. I mean, initially, you're always working from the back end. When you start out learning how to train horses, you run into problems and then you figure out how to solve the problems. After a while, you realize how to avoid the problems. And so that's what this is, is installing your toolbox before your toolbox is needed. And now I'm going to come to the the last the last of the principles. And the last of the principles is called separate, I'm oh, sorry, Isolate, separate, recombine. And what that means is a lot of times when you start teaching more advanced things to horses and even some of the earlier on things, you are taking two things they can already do and you're putting them together to create something new. And what you've got to remember is if you go to do that, those two things should work separately from each other perfectly well before you put them together. And when you put them together to create this new thing whatever it is and that new thing doesn't work it will not work because one of those things is not at the same level it was when it was separate and so what you do is you in your head you isolate which one's not working you separate it from the two you fix it and then you recombine it and I'll give you an example from a horse expo in New Zealand a few years ago there was a dressage lady from I think she's from Holland her name's Kira Kirkland I'm pretty sure 
if you're a dressage rider, you would have heard of her. I think she's competed at four Olympics. And she was doing a masterclass. And in that masterclass, she was having someone do a leg yield. Now, a leg yield is pretty simple. It's moving forward and slightly laterally at the same time. Okay, so you've got to have forward and lateral. And so this girl would walk along and, the, and Kira would ask her to do a leg yield. Let's say the leg yield is to the right, which means she'd have a left leg on the girth. When she put her left leg on, the horse did not move to the right. He just kept going forward. And so you've got to go forward and you've got to go sideways. We had forward, but we had no sideways. And so what she had the girl do was when she put her leg on and the horse didn't go sideways, she said, halt. So stop the forward. So no more forward. Leave your leg on there and do a turn on the forehand, which means teach get your horse off your leg. Move that. It's a lateral movement sideways and around. Get your horse off your leg and then release and then go again. Walk forward. Ask for the leg yield. If there's no sideways, isolate that sideways movement from the forward movement and do it again. And over and over and over. And after a while, the, the horse would do a leg yield. And it's really no different training a reining horse to spin. A reining horse, you know, teaching a reining horse to spin is very similar to uh, teaching a can of pirouette. But teaching a reining horse to spin, you've got to have lateral and forward at the same time. A spin is a forward movement. And normally you'll start walking a circle, which has got a lot of forward and a little bit of lateral, you know, like you're going around in a bit of a circle. And you just make that circle smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And at some point in time, they when they start to go directly sideways laterally, they take their inside front foot, step it sideways. The next step they'll do is step backwards behind. And so, you you know, you've got forward and sideways and, and less forward and more sideways and less forward and more sideways. And when you get complete sideways, you lose the forward. And so then what you do is you walk back out of it again. Okay, you don't keep trying to go sideways and get the forward at the same time. Okay, and this is what stops a lot of arguments with your horse is when you can separate those two. Trying to, you know, the horse that the leg yield horse, trying to get that horse to go sideways while they're going forwards was just going to create that horse running through your hands and create a problem. And so, you know, those are a couple of examples of isolate, separate, recombine, but you know, um, most technical movements are made up of other movements all put together and, you know, there could be eight separate things that go into a movement and you've got to be able to figure out which one of those is not working as good as it was when it was on its own. So you isolate it mentally, you separate, you know, you separate it from the other maneuvers or the other movements, you go back and you f fix it and then you recombine everything back together. So, um, if you're still with me at the end of this marathon podcast, congratulations, you've made it to the end. Um, and so those, those principles, they're not, you know, they're not my principles. Like I didn't, I suppose I identified them. I mean, you know, they are universal principles of how things work. I just identified them and gave names to them. And yeah, if you can really get to understand those principles, then what you can do is you can watch someone working with a horse or take a lesson from, you know, your trainer or whatever. And when they tell you to do something, instead of just doing it, a lot of times understanding the principles can get you to go, oh, I know why we're doing that. That makes sense. I mean, I, you know, I read lots of articles, watch videos, all sorts of things. And every time I see somebody else doing something with a horse, I'll go, oh yeah, that works because that falls under that principle, and I really haven't found anything that does not fall under one of those 12 principles. And like you saw about the last six or eight of them, kind of all have a, a part of, 
some of the first four anyway. But uh, anyway, thanks for joining me on the podcast and hopefully uh, that just gives you a little bit to think about and maybe demystifies some of the things that um, that are commonly done with horses and helps you understand why they're done and why they work. So thank you for joining me and uh, join us again uh, next time on the Journey On podcast and uh, hopefully I'll have a very exciting guest for you to listen to. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.